Welcome, y'all. I'm Deeg. This is Deeg Chats. I'm here today talking with I'm Josh Borman. And for some reason, hearing my own voice back in my head. That's me. That's my bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good. How's it going, Josh? Good, good. Except for technical difficulties. Uh, as a professional streamer, I'm really aware that you should, uh, you know, mute Twitch when you have it up in the background. But, uh, you know, I forgot. Well, hey, at least we got it out of the way. That's yeah. that's our technical bug. It's gone. It's past us. That's right. Doesn't so have to loom. A single problem. Doesn't have to hold any power over us anymore. Well, hey, uh, Josh, I'm super happy we were able to catch up. Um, I'm a huge fan of Guild Wars 2, and that's how I first kind of got to know you through guild chats and learning about things like super adventure box and jumping puzzles. But you've been in the games industry a long time, my friend. I wonder, Josh, if I could ask you to start this off by telling me what motivated you to get into game development as early as you did. Because I know it was like the mid to late 90s when you started, right? Uh, mid, yeah. Okay. Uh, my motivation was, it turns out that the school I went to, that I thought I was going to learn animatronics to do special effects in Hollywood, huh. um, it was the Art Institute of Seattle on their glossy brochure, because this was back before online was really a thing. Uh -huh. Their glossy brochure had pictures of animatronic creatures for film and i was like yes this is what i want to do uh -huh. so i went to the art institute and my degree was industrial design because that's how you got the class where you build animatronic creatures uh turns out uh, art institute of seattle was more of a diploma mill that just took in oh. eager naive people from north pole alaska like i was <laughs> and um you know takes their their government loans and then spits them out at the end and they're like okay you did it. Uh, good luck. And uh, yeah, so I did not learn to make animatronics for Hollywood. And um, somewhere along the line, I became aware that working in the video game industry was a thing. I'd been a, a hardcore gamer my entire life, going back to, I think I was three years old, uh -huh. I was living in Japan. My uh -huh. dad had procured, he was in the Air Force, and he had procured a Space Invaders cocktail table oh, that was in our apartment. That is and so cool. And I would cool. play that every day before school. <laughs> and I have a vivid memory of crying in frustration before being sent off to preschool um, <laughs> because I kept dying in Space Invaders. Little uh, did I know that you know these, these arcades are designed for you to die over and over again. But I felt indeed. like I was doing something wrong. It was very... So. Yeah, that's a real gamer uh, moment. Yeah, that's but, a good one. <laughs> yeah, uh, hardcore right. gamer all my life. Um, for for whatever reason, you know, back in the early uh, late '80s, early '90s, there was never a obvious career path into video games. Uh -huh. uh, my generation grew up with the understanding that video games were made in Japan and uh -huh. then shipped over here, right? The Nintendo thing. Um, you know, this was because I, I was the generation that came of age, uh, well, video game age. Slightly after the big console crash, so Atari and ColecoVision and all those oh, were like out. The dark days. And so gaming. I came in with the Nintendo, and that uh -huh. was like, and then the Genesis, and then you know, so everything was made in Japan. Uh -huh. So we just had no idea that I could make video games. Um, okay. But somewhere along the way, I think it was because I got an internship at this place called Dylan Works, and uh -huh. uh, they were a shop that created the big like a trade show booth art and stuff like that for you know e3 for instance so yeah uh so 
mid-90s, they were working on a booth for Sony because I believe the PlayStation 1 was coming out. And the little-known factoid here, PlayStation's original sort of, like, uh, mascot was called Polygon Man, I think. Oh, God. And he was literally a polygonal head with, like, spiky hair, and it was, like, purple. Poly- anyway, we we the shop I was at had sculpted this, you know, 12-foot-tall version of it for their booth. Um, and then they started getting other video game related jobs and one that i got to work on a little bit was a full motion video game so the back when the cd-rom was the new hotness uh, the idea was uh, oh my god we could do like real like video it's it's you know way better than mario graphics and so that was that was the hot thing for a while and i was not working very long on, though Oof. not very long uh <laughs> it turns out those games just weren't good yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, so I, I made some rat like uh, puppet thing that would go on an RC car, and the uh, they needed like a bunch of these to like drive around because there there was supposed to be this. I don't even remember what I think it was like a western, but rat, but with rats. Maybe okay. I don't All know. Right. <laughs> All right, yeah, I buy it. And and full motion video, of course. And rather than doing graphics of the rats. You build rat puppets and put them on RC cars and film them, you know, scurrying around on the ground. So it's horrifying. <laughs> okay. So yeah, that was that was my intro to it. And then um a friend of mine got a got a job right out of um Art Institute at Monolith. Mm-hmm. And that's when I knew I was like, man, I I can do this. Mm-hmm. Start aiming for video games. And um fortunately in the Seattle area, it's a hotbed for uh, game development, yeah. and I ended up doing an intern, or not an internship, a, I don't know, I guess a contract job at uh, Humongous. So they made uh-huh. a bunch of kid games, the the Putt-Putt the Car, it was, was it Freddy Fish, maybe? Um, you know Spy what? Fox. My only exposure to the game Freddy Fish is my wife talking about it, playing when she was a kid. So I, I, it rings a bell there for me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was, uh, I, I think it was Nemo before Finding Nemo was a thing. Okay, and, okay. Uh, yeah, so anyway, that's how I ended up uh, the on-ramp into video games. You oh. know, as given my particular skill sets, proclivities, and passions, it was just the, the conjunction of all those things. Definitely, so, yeah. Cool. Okay, so uh, passionate gamer, lifelong, I mean, I gotta imagine you were the envy of, of kids at your school for having an arcade cabinet in your home. That is... That is such it was a actually pretty common because um, d- during the this was in the late seventies. Okay. Uh, the the arcades in Japan would if a if a unit started to malfunction they would just throw it in the dumpster in the back rather than repair it and so the GIs would kind of cruise the back alleys dig these out of the trash you know do their electronic stuff fix it and then sell it like dirt cheap. So I, I, I think it was pretty common, actually, on uh, Ileson Air Force. Wait, not Ileson. That was the one in uh, Alaska. Okay. What was it? Yakota. Yakota Air Force Base in Japan. Uh, I think it was okay. pretty common to have okay. those. Yeah, that, that sounds like a very interesting scene. Okay, so uh, the arcade cabinet and the, the childhood-loving games. Uh, you knew you wanted to, to, to pursue a creative interest. I mean, animatronics in film is like an insanely creative-sounding thing. He found games and yeah. found gaming, humongous entertainment. What was the next thing after that? 
Oh, boy. So from Humongous, I managed to land a job at a little place called Synergistic Software. This was owned by Sierra Online. Oh. Uh, it, was, it was down in Renton. It wasn't at Sierra. Um, but they had done, they had just finished, when I started there, a uh, the add-on pack for Diablo. Okay. I cannot remember what it was called, but it introduced the monk. Um and Blizzard North was very upset at them because they did everything wrong, of course. Uh, <laughs> Diablo Hellfire, For whatever reason, Sierra owned right. the rights to make an add-on pack for it. So, sure, so we cool. did that. Yeah, and, um, and so I ended up working there. Oh, gosh. It was probably, well, it was definitely less than a year. And, but it was a very exciting year because Sierra also had the license to Lord of the Rings. And oh. keep in mind, this is before the movies. This is 97. Yeah, right. 96, yeah. 97. The movies were early 2000s. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, um, that could have been a huge, right? So, we started yeah. development. We had all this experience with the Diablo engine. So, we were basically making Lord of the Rings Diablo. Like, Ooh. how could that not be the biggest hit you can imagine, right? That does sound cool. Um, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> However, Sierra decided, you know what? Um, this Diablo add-on pack is the only game that made us money the entire year. Let's shut down that part of the studio and focus on sports games because Sierra Online is going to be known for sports games from now on. Oh, right. So we pivoted hard. Uh, half the studio lost their jobs or moved over to Sierra Corporate. I did not move over there because they were only working on games that I, at the time, I felt like I couldn't in good conscience work on. Um, okay. I, I had okay. Uh, strong religious convictions, and the one game that they could get me on was uh, Gabriel Knight Three, which okay. was is essentially like the Da Vinci Code before the Da Vinci Code. So it was just like very against my faith at the time, and oh, okay. I, I was like, huh. oof, you know, which was painful because I had, you know, I had just started my career. Really, I got my foot in the door, and uh, there no places were biting at the time. Every Every place that I was looking at was, uh, which was, you know, back at the time, the video game industry in the U.S., there were maybe 50 places you could mm -hmm. get a job, mm -hmm. um, you know, as opposed to now where there's probably a thousand. Uh, yeah, so they were they all wanted animators at the time. I don't know why, but every place seemed to want animators, and I was not okay. trained in animation. I had done a little bit of it, but not enough to, like, just, you know, say this is my full-time job. I, just, I specifically applied for it animation um like a junior position at uh -huh. bethesda oh and their offer was seventeen thousand dollars a year uh <laughs> which was no you know this is the 90s so it's a, okay more than but still i could have made more at mcdonald's um yeah, yeah so that was a really d difficult time for me uh i had a newborn son uh, we couldn't afford to stay in the Seattle area. We moved in with my parents down in um, Vancouver, mm. Washington. And my ex-wife, the then wife at the time, hated my parents. And so we oh, couldn't stay fun. there very long. We ended up moving to Oklahoma out of desperation. That's where her extended family was. Okay. And it was just like, well, I guess this is the sacrifice I need to make for my convictions. Going to go work at the lumber mill with, uh, with my wife's uh, uncle or whatever. Okay. Holy <laughs> shit, man. And, um, yeah. So that was quite a, quite a lurch. Um, yeah. However, 
out of the 50 CD-ROMs that I that I sent, uh, created with my portfolio on them, I, I actually like airbrushed my logo onto the CD-ROM. Oh, sweet, sweet. Uh, <laughs> I love the value and, add. Uh, yeah, it was very fancy. Um, <laughs> finally, someone got back to me after several months, and it was Outrage Entertainment in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So they were working on Descent 3. And uh, yeah, so I got that job. Uh, so the Oklahoma detour was only for a couple of months. Thank God I'm not not an Oklahoman. Um, it's hard to imagine that. <laughs> when you look at me, the first thing you think is not, that's a boy from Oklahoma. I definitely think of a Southern uh, dude working on the lumber mill, definitely. Yeah, so uh, ended up in, in Ann Arbor working on Descent 3, um, then the expansion pack for Descent 3. And that's when I really started getting into the more of the level design aspect of of games uh, right. before that I had been purely focused on the art side. Um, and I think I've just always liked thinking of everything very holistically. I'm not a, a niche type of thinker where I like sure. burrow down into my little area and just try to focus on that. Okay. Um, so yeah, I, I got into the level design on descent one and especially on the expansion pack. I did a lot of level design for that. Um, and that was uh, just just a fantastic experience. Descent, I was there for five years. Descent was a game where you piloted a ship, and like the the the, the buzzword, if I remember right, was like like six axis, right? Because you could you could rotate, you you could pivot, you go up, down, left, right. I imagine that that designing environments for that posed some pretty unique challenges, given the the, mm -hmm. the gameplay verbs that game had. Yeah. So the fortunate thing is that there were descents one and two where a yeah. lot of lessons and best practices had been discovered. So I got to learn from the people who were, who made those, you know, what works and what doesn't work and yeah. that kind of okay. uh, design. But what's interesting is I, I, I guess it was, it's kind of like being thrown in the deep end from a level design perspective. Mm -hmm. Cause when I started doing level design for a two, you know, regular game where you're just a guy running around, um, it was a lot, uh, it was very easy, I guess uh -huh. you could say. It, you started it, in hard like mode. Going yeah. mode. In tribulation <laughs> mode, you might say. Yes. <laughs> okay. So that was um, that was a great experience. Uh, the last couple years there, I was working on a game called Rubu Tribe, which, uh, so Interplay was publishing us, and Interplay ran into a bunch of financial problems, stopped paying a bunch of the studios that, that they were publishing games yeah, for, that story. Uh, us included. And um, so, yeah, that game got canceled. I was actually the art lead on it and uh, heavily involved in the design as well. But um, that was my first, like, well, I guess, I guess you could say that was my second, like, devastating time in the game industry because, you know, the first being when I felt like I had to quit and not take that job at Sierra. Right, um, right. But this time it was a lot more... Um, personal in the sense of of like i had invested this was going to be the greatest game ever uh -huh. um, in fact i'm actually working on a documentary about it now oh seriously it's, yeah it's it's a very interesting thing because as far as far as i know this has never been done for many uh -huh. good reasons but the stars <laughs> kind of aligned on on this because the reason it can't be done is because everyone's under nda forever right yeah. but because Sierra defaulted, the IP reverted to basically the president of the company, Matt uh -huh. Toshlog, and so he's just owned the IP for the past 20 years and done nothing with it. Huh. And 
I reached out to him and said, I, you know, it's been 20 years. I would love to just like talk about the story of this game and talk uh-huh. about all the unique, uh-huh. like just that it's, it's a cool little time capsule of development in the U S and, you know, on, on the nace. Well, this was before PlayStation two, it was on a PlayStation two dev kit. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So there's just lots of really interesting elements to it. And he was like, yeah, okay. that's cool. So I'm, I've been interviewing cool. a bunch of my former coworkers and, um, yeah, I'm going to be putting that together. The, the last one I did was with uh, John Gonzalez, who he was a writer on Rubu Tribe, but he went on to write um, to be the narrative director for Fallout New Vegas, for oh. um, wow. Horizon Zero Dawn, and Horizon, you know, the next one, Forbidden West. Yeah. Um, yeah. So right. there's there's a bunch of people who went on to do really cool things, and so I'm interviewing that. It's going to be really cool. I'm really excited about it. That's really it. exciting, Josh. And yeah, I think yeah. that you're right that that... I mean, game game dev is is to me it, it just at least as an outsider it seems very interesting even in the current day. But going back to like those those earlier days where things were less uh, figured out, especially when um, games were made outside the public eye uh, in a big way. Um, yeah, there was a very lot different days. Less, yeah, a lot less of that. Um, I, I guess you could say scrutiny, uh, but it, it's more along the lines of like no one seemed to care much <laughs> about uh, what was going on behind the scenes. Um, well, no one knew games yeah. are going to be the the biggest uh the most important force in entertainment like like they are now. No one knew that yeah. back in the the well, I mean some people did. You probably did. I I suspected as okay. much. And I think that's one of the reasons I had kind of the impulse to to go into video games was because I felt like I, I I think intuitively I can articulate it better now, but back then I felt like this is a brand new medium in the same way that film was a brand new medium, yes. you know, in the early 1900s. And there's so much um, interesting problems to be solved in that kind of a yeah. situation, uh, as opposed to simply iterating on on formulas that are well trodden at this point, like right. like is often mostly done in in film and movies and or uh, books and and tv and stuff mm. yeah definitely okay so things don't work out back in the on that particular game um interplay stopped paying uh so what uh um, i'm excited to see that documentary when it comes out so i'll be watching for that but meantime yeah. what was your uh your next step after that so uh we were uh purchased by thq uh uh-huh. I, I believe the the president of the company you know we were probably 30 or 40 people we had kind of an a team and a b team or an a game and a b game um as you know i don't know why we thought we could do that i guess because back (laughs) then the rules were still being written about what studios could handle with how many people (laughs) Uh uh and and also well actually i've got an answer to this the reason that we thought we could do two triple a games at the same time with 40 people was because our founder started in the early 90s when it took two people to make a triple a AAA game right uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. so 40 people is luxury of course you can make two triple a games make five two will be people. easy <laughs> anyway so we had right. that b game and uh thq was not interested in rubu tribe it was too out there um and this other one was a little more along the lines of what was hot at the time uh it was is kind of a devil may cry sort of game a little more um mm-hmm abstract you know it, it's it's a, a 3d action platformer beat-em-up uh but our guy could morph into three different forms 
And uh, the environment you're going through is very unique. And in fact, it was too unique. I have a whole talk about that on my huh. YouTube channel. <laughs> where I talk about how like there's this the sweet spot you want to hit where there's a certain amount of novelty that that people want or they're going to be bored and feel uh -huh. like everything is and boring. Uh, but then you can go too far and people will just be completely alienated. And that's what happened with Alter Echo was uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it did not do well. Um, THQ shut us down as soon as we shipped. Uh, they did graciously give us a, a month or two of pay to like get our portfolios together. And they gave okay. us severance okay. package okay. and stuff like that. Um, so it wasn't the worst thing. Uh, it was the worst thing for me because I was... <laughs> At another uh, crazy junction uh, point in my life where my ex-wife had got, uh, she literally became addicted to crack and was oh. taking my kids to drug dealers' houses. And I'm not going to go into details. Oh, my God. Not, uh, That's not horrifying. the inquirer. But okay. the point being that it, just from a biographical standpoint, this was the lowest of the low point in my life where everything had fallen apart, you know, uh, everything I had predicated all my belief systems on were panning out not to work the way they were supposed to work. Right. Um, and uh, you know, my kids were literally in danger and the cost of making them not be in danger was out of my league, especially since all of my money, you know, uh, mysteriously disappeared from my bank account very quickly. And uh, oh. yeah, so I ended up escaping back to Washington State again with my parents who are, live in Vancouver, Washington. Okay. Um, and I was able to bring the boys with me. You know, they were oh, two and five, I believe, okay. at the time. Um, and then, you know, the ex moved out here and there was some more necessary legal tussling that had to happen. Yeah. But uh, ended up getting into ArenaNet pretty quickly, which oh, okay. was amazing. That's a blessing. Um, yeah. That was the best yeah, thing going. Fastest, I think that's the fastest I've landed on my feet in the game okay. industry. It was probably only three or four months between gigs, which is good because I was literally completely out of money. Um, and so yeah. th there was, and, and there's like, one of the things that I will forever be incredibly grateful to ArenaNet, um, you know, I was employee number 30 something, right? So it was wow. very much like an old studio. Yeah. And the, the founders were down to earth people who, wow. you know, cared about us and talked to us and um, they were paying I, I think this is less common now but it was pretty common back then they would pay to move employees out right so i was having my stuff packed up in michigan and moved out here and so my first week uh at arena net the front desk got a call from the moving company saying we can't move this stuff because we found crack cocaine in the drawer oh and that we god were oh no josh <laughs> And so I got to have a very fun discussion with my with one of the founders about why why this would be. Oh no. Um, and uh, it was fairly understanding. And okay, he he just kind of took me at my word, which wow. Uh, That's incredible. Yeah, thank the stars for that. The whole story. Um, and then, week or two later, I had talked to my attorney you know, about the the divorce and the custody and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my attorney informed me that as soon as she gets an attorney, the first thing they're going to say is to accuse me of spousal abuse, because that way 
the police are uh, mandatorily supposed to come and pick me up and then I will be have an arrest on my record, right? So they can be used in court. Um, and so, and my attorney told me, this will most likely happen at your work because that's where they know you're going to be during the day. God. So that was another discussion I got to have with a, a founder at ArenaNet. Hey, Jeff Strain, um, police may show up and arrest me sometime soon. <laughs> Just one little thing. Might happen, might not happen. No big deal. Yeah. Um, so Did that it happen? Was, uh, exciting times. Very exciting times. Uh, I uh, shortly thereafter, within a year, met my current wife, who has been the most, uh, the, the biggest blessing in my life and is my rock and amazing. So everything turned out for the better, but it had to go through a really rough spot for a while there. Yeah. Uh, but because of that, and then all the subsequent issues with dealing with the ex and the drugs and the and the um, the court and the this and the that meant that uh, I was pretty much financially hobbled for the next decade plus. Yeah, and so wow. And what, but what's interesting about that is that's what kept me at ArenaNet is mm -hmm. that it was a stable company. They did not demand crunch very often. Well, I yeah. don't think they ever demanded crunch, but they're an, they're a mostly anti-crunch company, which is pretty darn rare. That's what I've heard, um, and that's what I understand too. That seemed to be a real gem in the overall industry in that way. Yeah, yeah. So um, the downside to working at one company for fifteen plus years is that um, the best practice, if you want to progress your career, is to bounce from company to company every two to three years. That's what yeah. most people in the game industry do. Uh, so yeah, I definitely took a big hit on that front. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, it's one of those things where life just has a way of propagating, you know, one, uh, just waves of <laughs> problems that um, and it, it works the other way too. If you start out very wealthy, you know, it propagates in the other direction, but sure, I did not. So uh, that's, that's all to say then it's a lot of personal stuff I know, but I, I don't mind being personal. I I appreciate it when other people are open and transparent, so I like to be it uh, to begin with. Um, what that did was that put me in a position where um, I was very tied to this company, uh, and I worked mm -hmm. on, you know, I ended up having an experience that's fairly unique in the game industry as a result. I paid a heavy price for it, but I got this really interesting thing of going following a franchise from its nascent stage to full development and then a full sequel and then, you know, on and yeah, on. So yeah. um, I think that w when I look back at it, it's given me very valuable experience that ties into exactly what I want to accomplish in my, in my oh. personal life with my own franchise, um, uh -huh. you know, because, because I got to watch, you know, be, be a shepherd through this entire process I could see the mistakes that were made, the the right decisions that were made, um, and you know, staffing things, you know, business things. There's just so many lessons that can be taken away from them when there's that very broad and long context. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, I was there. Was I there longer than any founder? I think I was because when did I think Mike Mo leave? left before I did. I think yeah, anyway, he was, was 2018, like, long, long late 2018, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Anyway, yeah, very interesting. And 
And so I, I, I like to try to think about every perspective, like the good and the bad. Yeah. And I try to be neutral on, yes, this was a bad thing that happened. Yes, it has negative consequences in my life, but there are also these positive ways to to take something away from it. Yeah, right. Yeah, sometimes the, the, the I think that with the right approach and maybe a little luck, like the, the tragedies of our lives can be turned into like the blessing in disguise, right? I've been through my own... Yeah many tragedies, layoffs, things like that. This is like the worst thing that could possibly happen. But then looking back at it, something that is amazing about my life might never have happened if it weren't for those tragedies too. So it's yep. hard to know. Exactly. Um, man, the, the story you told about um, about uh, your ex with the drugs and the flight uh, back to, to, the, to Vancouver to live with your parents and with your kids, I, I can't imagine how difficult that was. Um, I have lived through an experience that was a, a little like that, but not a lot, with my um, my mother-in-law's uh, uh, estrangement and divorce from my father-in-law. Um, mm. And there was just a lot of difficulty and uh, bad faith, bad blood, um, and all the legal costs, which I'm sure, yeah. I mean, it sounds like is really, really characterized and dominated your like life. Like literally every time we would get a bonus, you know, the, the first Guild Wars did really well. We got a nice big yeah. bonus. It was like, well, oh, all goes to the lawyer. <laughs> oh, shit, dude. That it, that happened twice. Yeah. 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 I feel for that. I feel for that. And, um, but uh, you got your boys and um, I want to, I, I know a little bit about your boys because I saw your video about the coming of age ritual you did, which I want to ask you about in a little I bit. Uh, I yeah. love that. Um, no, let's, screw it. Let's talk about it now. Okay. So uh, we're talking about the personal stuff. So, um, you know, I, I was, I was uh, trying to learn stuff about you that I didn't really know about you. Because being a Guild Wars fan, I knew a lot of Guild Wars stuff about you already. And uh, I saw you on like um, AV Club podcast that you did, I think it was. And you mentioned this, this coming of age ritual that you uh, designed for your boys. And um, as someone who... Personally, I feel like I grew up without ever being told by my parents what their values were and never having anything like a coming-of-age ritual to understand how to be an adult and how to deal with life. Like, that was insanely cool. I, I wonder if you could tell the story of the coming-of-age ritual that you made for your kids and uh, the what it was and how it went. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, well, exactly what you're talking about. I, I sense that our culture lacks something that the vast majority of cultures throughout all of humankind have always had. Yeah. Um, which are, you know, we have maintained a couple ceremonies. We've got the death ceremony. We've got the wedding ceremony. We've got right. the, the birth ceremony, you know, mm -hmm. more or less. <laughs> um, although that, that's been kind of abstracted out of it. But um, yeah, the, the idea of coming of age is just like such a, such a pivotal time in when you think psychologically about a human brain as it develops yeah. there's these you know very profound stages that it's going through and i think that's the reason that the coming of age ceremony became a thing and and stayed a thing throughout um you know like i said all of history and vast majority of cultures mm -hmm. is because there's this point at which a a human starts um you know they they start with the carrot and stick as far as like their moral compass is concerned. Mm. Some people never develop past that, but you, you develop the capacity to really start internalizing those values 
um, and making, you know, making sacrifices yourself that are imposed by the self as opposed to outside forces. Right. 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 And that's Voluntary. about the stage mm-hmm. of brain development around the like, it, you know, 12 through 15, you know, depending on okay. lots of factors. Um, it's just a, a, a very important time. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I just felt like here's an opportunity to do something interesting for my kids. I, I'm always trying to think what, what can I do besides the baseline? You know, I'm providing okay. a route and food, you know, <laughs> making sure they do their homework sort of thing. I mean, thing. it's a lot, um, but let's not undersell it. It's it a is lot. a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. Uh, and to be fair, I didn't even do that all the time. I actually, <laughs> I no, actually, th- this is an interesting point. Okay. I would, um, I downregulated the importance of homework and scholastic oh. achievement in general with my kids. Oh, interesting. I just felt like from my experience with school, I got almost nothing out of school mm. except heartache. Um, after I was in my 20s, that's when I developed a love for learning. And I ended up spending untold amounts of money on education after that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and that's when it meant something for me. That's when it began to stick. That's when, you know, I was excited and passionate about it. Um, and so to that end, I was like, you know, they need to not fail. But as far as like, because... Depending on the personality, mm-hmm, a lot mm-hmm. of kids, in order to get them to the point where they are, are excelling scholastically, you are sacrificing relational um, integrity for okay, that. You okay. have to come down and be the strict disciplinarian. You're just always writing them. You're blah, 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 blah. And I'm not one of those parents who's like, you got to be best friends with your kids. But I also just think that you need to be aware, like, I, I don't know, maybe the game designer part of my brain. I always see uh-huh. these trade-offs, like like these little yeah. health bars, right? You Trying got your to iterate on the systems you that your... you were exposed to growing up. Like, it's totally natural yeah. designer thing to want to do, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, um, fr- from that perspective, I, just, I was just like, school schmool, don't fail, you know, uh-huh. As, uh-huh. as long as you're at least getting through it. Uh, don't let fine. it hold you back, but don't get, yeah. don't get stuck in it either. Yeah. Uh, right. So, so yeah, but to, to the, uh, to the ceremony. So okay. I, I'm also inclined towards ceremony because I was raised uh, Christian, conservative Christian. Um, although it's the least ceremonial of all Christian sects, which is evangelicalism, which okay. almost takes a perverse pleasure in saying that they don't have ceremonies. Okay. <laughs> it's just the particular flavor, right? Sure. Um, and and so and maybe that that was a part of it is I come from a a long cultural tradition, uh-huh. but the recent within the past hundred years or so has splintered off and and poo pooed a lot of those kind of ceremonies. So uh-huh. anyway, uh-huh. Th- this was this was my attempt to be like, okay, what would personally work well for for me and my family? You know, mm. what could my boys actually take away from it and thrive and who knows maybe someday pass it on to their kids mm-hmm. um and so yeah the, it when i boiled when, when i started studying these coming of age ceremonies the question that that kept coming up to me was like what is the purpose what are they actually achieving mm-hmm. and i think through it all like when you boil them all down essentially what they're doing is saying 
here are the values of our community. Here are your expectations as an adult. Here's how you are going to thrive in this community, in this culture as an adult. Um, you know, whether that's anything yeah. from, you know, the the going out on the great hunt to, to the walkabout to the like, there's this one tribe that like jumps off of a giant platform on a bungee vine and like they have to hit the top of their head, but not break their neck. And so it's like, All right. they're, they're, it, it's kind well, of like a population control ball. going on with that. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't get it, but it's a thing. So anyway, um, yeah, there's I, a need I, across I, cultures to 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 um, not just raise children, but to to formalize to, to find a moment to, to to communicate to them. Hey, like it's time to grow up like we've yeah. been teaching you all these years. So let's 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 shrink this all down to an experience that you're going to remember and is going to be instructive about how to how to proceed into the future. That's that's cool. And how yeah. did you, how'd you tackle that? So um, I think the so I had defined the goal. The goal okay. is impart new values. Uh, uh, how to do that? I, again, looking at lots of different ceremonies across lots of different cultures. Um, the the kind of sweet spot I was trying to hit was it's got to be memorable. How well? How do you make a thing memorable? Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. if you go out to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, yeah. we've done that yeah. lot. Uh, you know, if, if if you have just just a party, um, eh. so I thought of this idea of a challenge. You know, um, oh. we we have this beautiful environment that we live in in the Pacific Northwest, and lots of mountains around it. So I was mm -hmm. like hiking up a mountain. That's just that's so classic, right? Um, yeah. And and it's there. It's not like we live in the middle of uh, Iowa or something, right? Uh -huh, so uh -huh. we have this opportunity on a golden platter here. Um, Mount St. Helens actually, so that's uh, about two hours south of us here in Seattle. And it has a lot of um, historical significance to our family. Most of my uh, extended family lives in the Longview area, which is just just a hop, skip, and a, you know, just downwind. So they were one of the communities that was covered in five inches of ash when Helens exploded, I believe, in Ooh. 1980. Um, hey. Yeah, Close. and so the, there's, uh, our family hikes um, Mount St. Helens fairly frequently. Yeah, okay. And so it, it's a known spot. It's not, it's not like a, a Mount Kilimanjaro or something where you need hiking, you know, serious gear. You know, it's you can just walk up it. And there's mm -hmm. some scrambling over boulders and scree and stuff, but for the most part, it's it's pretty straightforward, pretty mm -hmm. easy. I want to say it's like a four hours going up, maybe five. Um, anyway, yeah. So there it was. Um, I had my list of values that I had sat and kind of like gone through and asking myself, like again, distilling things down. What what is important to pass on to my kids? Mm -hmm. uh, let, let's just pick a number. Because you know, I could just spout off values all day. Uh, but what are the most important central ones? Um, and that's really when I struck on something that I had felt all my life, but articulating it was really powerful to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it just it sounds so granola or whatever, but uh, or new agey, who knows what it is. But just striking on this idea that love is foundational to to them all mm -hmm. was was powerful to me, mm -hmm. and it. That was actually one of the things that became a catalyst for driving forward um, my work on the the Tales from Talofar IP that I've been developing uh -huh. was now that I've found this value, which I ended up labeling fierce love, which is 
because in English, love can mean anything from like, yes. I want to have sex with you to this is the best pizza ever. Uh-huh. Um, it, I, I had to, I had to be more specific. What love are we talking about here? Right. Mm-hmm. And so a, a love that is willing to sacrifice, but in a wise way, you know, mm-hmm. so, so you don't fall off the edge of like, becoming codependent or, you know, that all, all these ways you can sacrifice yourself in an unhealthy way. Right. Um, and you don't have the love on, on the other side, which is only about like self-serving and, you know, how, how can I get people to love me? That sort of thing. So, so fierce love was my balance, was love my of thing. the self so, and love of the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, C.S. Lewis has a wonderful book called the four loves that uh-huh. separates them out in, in, really uh fun oh, detail okay. but um okay the the important thing to me was okay now that i have this value i can start i can have a proposition for what am what am i doing with my life right uh-huh. uh because i could I, i've always uh, hmm, since i think high school i've had this idea i'm gonna make my own franchise you know my own star wars my own lord of the rings oh, this is an old idea got it got it yeah but I had never connected it to values in any way besides this is a fun thing I want to do. And so it's when I connected it and said, okay, what is the purpose of making this? And I decided I'm going to try to make the world more loving with stories. Uh-huh. Okay. So that that's my business goal now. And it's like, now I can put everything through that lens of like, as I'm developing stories, like what you can choose from a billion different potential ways to tell a story. Right. So I, I have a lens now to start thinking through these things. Um, and that's, wow, you wanted rabbit trails. There's a rabbit trail. That's a cool uh, one, man. Point, I love how <laughs> deeply you thought through this stuff. I overthink a lot. Yeah, I have a blog that I started back when I started at, at ArenaNet, so uh-huh. back in 2003 or four. Um, and it's, yeah, there, there's probably like 10 books worth of blogs in there where I just I just think and think and think and think out loud. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. I sympathize. Yeah, <laughs> overthinking probably, uh, but I enjoy it. So. Is it overthinking it's though, not... or is it thinking just in, just the right amount? I think it varies from person to person. I do right? think that there are personality types that they can think so much that it's like actually negative for them. Yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, yeah. your mileage may vary. Anyway, yeah. So um, the the idea with the ceremony. How do I impart these values? I came up with twelve. That's mm-hmm. that's like uh, a number associated with um, with lots of my religious tradition. Um, and then I ascribed each of those values to a different stone, and I picked the different stones. And in the Torah, it's uh, each of the twelve tribes of Israel has a stone associated with them. Okay. So I got okay. little chips of all the various stones that could slot into a ring. So it's like. It's so video game, right? That is so but gamey, I, and I love it. Yeah, so I made the silver ring I, uh, with with the my our family crest, which I decided is a lion's head inside of a heart. Uh-huh. So that's the fierce love going okay. on, right? Okay. And um, and that's also my company logo. So I made a uh-huh. ring with that. It's got the twelve slots in it, and the idea was that um, oh, and and I made twelve rocks. And each of these rocks had the value written in a nice script on it. Like I carved it into the rock. Okay. I put a little chip of that of that particular uh, semi-precious stone in there with epoxy. Wow. And so they've got these little relics. 
And the idea was... Um, are these as, real rocks with weight or are they like sculpted yeah. things? Okay, okay. No, these are these are rocks. I, I, I went to a quarry and I asked, you know, I, I tried to find the perfect kind of rock that would that would work for these things. Because the whole idea was... Wow. <laughs> ridiculous. I love it. Um, right. So, so I got all these rocks, 12 rocks that are probably a pound or two each. Uh-huh. And the idea was... We're going to go up the mountain and we're going to stop 12 times and I'm going to deliver this rock, you know, out of my backpack into your backpack. Here is mm -hmm. a value. Mm -hmm. Here's what here's why I think it's important. Here's what it means to me. Here's what I hope it means to you someday. OK, um, put it in the kid's backpack. OK, and then we continue. And so by the time we're getting to the top, they're hauling yeah. these heavy rocks. And this is where I get overly didactic about it. So. Uh, when we get near the final ascent, so there's a scree slope. Uh, scree is like loose, uh, pebbly gravel. So it's you mm -hmm. kind of have to like scramble up. Um, at that point, uh, we stop and I say, so these these values, you'll notice, make life harder. Like mm -hmm. you actually have to make a sacrifice in order to carry these values with you. And there's one final lesson I want to show you. So let's go ahead and take all these values out of your backpack. So we take them out. Oh, it's so much lighter, right? Yeah. And then I'm like, okay, now here's the opposite of all those values. And we have bigger jagged stones <laughs> with the with the anti-value okay, <laughs> attached okay. to them. And we load up their backpack and now it's much heavier. You know, so hopefully it's like embodying a physical version of this object lesson. Uh -huh. And you know, it, it's it's a couple minutes of very strenuous climbing yeah, yeah. and clambering up to the top. Um and, you know, again, I'm trying to hit that sweet spot where it's memorable. I don't want to literally torture my kids, right? I don't want them to resent me by the time this is done, but I do want them to remember it. No so vine bungee drops, huh? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we get up to the top and then uh, make a little fire and we put the anti-value, you know, the, the papers with the anti-values are on the rocks and we burn uh -huh. the anti-values, you know, and, and, and then in the ashes is the ring and I give them the ring. And then the idea is that um, as they grow over the next, you know, because this is when they turn 13, mm -hmm. um, until they graduate high school, I was just going to kind of periodically slot one of the, you know, value stones into their ring until they upgrade the, the ring to all okay. you know, 12 stones. Um, and that was that was the idea. That was the thought. Um, uh -huh. the, the reality is always that things are just way messier than you would like and way uh -huh. less poetic and, and down and dirty. And I think that's that's kind of beautiful, though, because um, it you can work really hard to do a thing and have it all turn to ash. And that's OK, because the process of working hard at that thing is... Do, it def, it's defining it yourself it transforms you and hopefully not defining just my family and defining my relationships with my yeah, family right yeah so, uh, yeah so that's that's what it was and it, yes it was very complicated it took a long time and a lot of work <laughs> uh, i bet you there was a lot of okay dad yeah yeah 13 is uh okay dad sort of age <laughs> and how long ago was this Oh boy! Well, my youngest is twenty-one now. Okay, almost twenty-two. Okay, yeah. So, a while so ago. you said it was messy, but I'm I'm just curious. Like, ha did you find any moments to confer the stones into the ring after? Like, were, were there any good moments that followed this? 
So or he says, this is the part that didn't work out. Here's the gory details of it. Well, not oh, too okay. gory because other people are involved. But um, the, the big picture is that my oldest son uh, had a very, very difficult teenage period. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, and yeah, I won't go into details, but it was not pretty. And this was um, not a top priority. Involved, yeah. So that, that kind of um, yeah, d- d- ruined my plans, my, my perfect plans to do this thing, right? Um, but again, at, at some point in his life, I'm hoping he'll come back and say, can I have, can I have that ring? And I'll, be, I'll say, absolutely. Yeah. This is, you know. Um, and then because of all the chaos that was caused by my older son, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my younger son was also perturbed in various ways. Um, mm. He turned out a lot more stable at the time. Um, but, you know, I, I try to look at things in the big picture and in the long term. And mm-hmm. so I, you know, it's too soon to say anything. Um, but yeah, I did not end up doing that. Uh, I I will, though. I'm going to give him the ring with that. Okay. With the stone. But he's currently living with us right now. Um, mm. You know, Gen Z, they're just so lazy. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not it. Uh, it's... <laughs> Turns out our economy is actually really, really bad uh, for young people, and um, it's yeah, yeah, it's a mess out there. So yes, I, I'm happy is. to have him live, live with us as long as he's like working towards a goal, and he's actually doing, he's thriving as well as a as a 21 year old trapped in his bedroom for a year plus can mm. be. Like he's been Oof. teaching himself all these instruments and music production and making music videos, and so yeah, I'm I'm really proud of him. And, That's good. Uh, making something yeah. of the time that's that's the best you can hope for and those in this kind of yep. situation which i mean it seems to be at least in the seattle area like things are starting to look better so mm-hmm. you know maybe the end Hopefully of the end of the world one two punch of like some other strain that is immune to the <laughs> i'm worried man the... i'm worried man because i don't know like i've been watching the way people have been acting over the last year and i i feel no confidence that we've got this shit figured out <laughs> yeah uh, yeah okay we agree well uh a beautiful a beautifully designed ceremony and i think the intention behind it is the thing that i find i mean obviously the execution was 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 amazing and it makes a great story but the intention behind it and the intentionality of saying um here's a responsibility that i have and how do i want to execute it um i don't know as someone who um you know was was a teenage boy at one point like, and I'm sure this is where the idea came from, from you too. Like, uh, I had no idea how to become an adult when I finally got to be adult years old. And, uh, my, my baby boomer parents, God bless them, who, you know, uh, you know, did part-time work during the summer to pay for their education and all that good stuff and had houses and families in their early, in, you know, in their mid twenties and, like they it's they just, just it's, it's hilariously like i it just blows my mind yeah I, working part-time to put yourself through college you know <laughs> it's just the thing you do <laughs> i love i love my parents i love my parents but when it comes to to certain things because of that just dissonance and in in the the realities at, at different points in our lives it's just i uh, i can't ask him for help it sucks yeah but uh yeah i i think i'm at this i'm at a weird like in between age where i'm like a young gen xer like i was born in 75 
Okay. So, okay. You know, millennials technically start somewhere in the 80, early 80s. So I'm I'm almost millennial and I've definitely experienced the beginnings of the of the financial tribulations that millennials would continue to go yeah. through, you know, and it's only gotten worse since then, you know, inflation versus minimum wage is mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. off the charts ridiculous. And yeah, seeing the expectation from the boomers of, you know, well, we did this thing. Why don't you just do this thing, dummies? You know, stop buying avocado toast and you can buy a house. Go knock um, down, go knock on doors, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, definitely. I mean, there's the, the, the interesting thing is that if you ask those questions, there is there are kernels of truth that you can glean from them. But when, when you're a kid, you don't know how to how to pick the truth out from from the flawed advice. Uh and yeah, yeah I, I was astonished to learn not long ago that I am actually technically a millennial. I was born in the early 80s. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, I grew up without social media, without cell phones. And mm-hmm. iPhone came out by the time, I, after I was out of college and I was out in the workforce. I'm like, how, how could I possibly be a millennial? It doesn't sound right. But apparently I am. Yep. I yeah. think that Millennials are old in the tooth now. I think zenial is the, the word people use for... Uh, there are people who are who are close to the the Gen X millennial line. Okay, have you heard I've, that? Mm, so I've heard Gen Z, Zennials. Uh, huh, that makes sense. I don't know. This is not my expertise. But anyway, yeah. uh, growing up is hard, and uh, it is, and that's why I hoped the idea was like specific advice about how to live your life is less valuable than saying here are values that I think are uh, perennial. They're Mm -hmm. something that can be applied regardless of the context. Um, At at least, you know, in the the term, uh, within a couple generations, right? I mean, values are still gonna change throughout the ages, but, you know, honesty. Like, (laughs) it's gonna hurt you in some context, it's gonna help you in other contexts, but in general, for your own well-being and health, and, and mental well-being, mm-hmm. you're probably better to be honest in mm-hmm. almost any context. Uh, here's this value. Here's why it's good. Right. It's good. Right. Um, yeah. So, but but when it comes to like adulting, you know, the whole thing like how do you how do you rent a house? How do you you know fax something to to the government to get this yeah. thing because there's no fax taxes. machines. Uh, right. All those sort of things are just always changing. Right. Yeah. So it's like. They should be taught in school, um, but they are, are under-taught. Uh, fortunately, Google helps a lot with that sort of thing these days. Yeah, man. I don't know what school is supposed to do anymore. After my experience going through it, I heard you share that you had a not a good one. Like, I know a lot of people who feel the same way. I watched this great video by a YouTuber named Zoe B talking about how, uh, how, how grades, how grading is awful, and it creates a system that incentivizes a uh, students not to learn but to obey and that's what they learn and uh yeah. when when you were talking about not making grades a priority i wondered if i wondered if maybe you were making not obeying sort of not the highest priority too like i, I wonder if that was something you thought about it could be um, you seem like someone who might who might value the ability to not obey yeah for sure what i value is uh evaluating everything so that you could make uh, good decisions for yourself and those around you yeah 
Yeah. Right. Because the the structures that we are in are an artifact of our culture and and culture is defined by a million different moving parts. And it's so mm -hmm. like random and emergent. And the idea that just following whatever the current paradigm is, is the best for you and everyone else strikes me as a very odd assumption. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I really empathize with that. Um, yeah. I think like so like my own path through life has looked kind of like. School was pretty good for me for the most part because I did I did I did well on tests so I didn't have to I didn't have to I didn't have to fix my school experience it just worked for me because I did well on tests. Um, I got to a point where my undiagnosed ADHD started screwing me because I couldn't do any, anything long term over time. It would be twenty years before I figured out that that's what my problem was. But you know, better late than never. Common and, story, yes. <laughs> and uh, my twenties were all about uh, being miserable. And trying to distract myself from being miserable, and along the way, learning a little bit the way uh, how the way, the way the world works. And then my thirties have been all about, um, like actually figuring out. Oh, here's how I want to be in the world. Here's how I want to engage with what's around me. Yeah. I don't know what's next. Yeah. But I'm I'm compared to my twenties, I am happy as a clam. I'm happier than I've ever been. I don't miss my twenties at all. Nope. Yeah. Same. Same. Uh, definitely. You know, at forty six. I have never been more at peace and had more joy in my life um, or been busier. Honestly, like I work constantly. I'm almost always at least uh, double booked as far, you know, if I'm watching something, I'm also sculpting in ZBrush. Uh -huh. If I'm working in the garage, I'm also streaming and which is also going towards my book, which is also going towards a YouTube video, which, you know, so, yeah, it's like, um, and, and to me, it's like, maybe it, again, it's my age, but, you know, I think about what I hope to accomplish, which is banana pants. It will never happen. You know, I, I'm not going to be the next George Lucas or whatever. And, and that's okay. But that's, mm -hmm. that is what I'm shooting for. Like, mm -hmm. I want to be producing and directing uh, TV or, or whatever the media of the future is, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. that is as good looking and high quality acting mm. and storytelling as like game of thrones, you know, the first several seasons, okay. uh, you, you know, and so like, there's a long distance between, you know, we, we wrote a novel, um, and I'm currently developing a, a graphic novel with a friend of mine. Um, and then eventually hope to roll that into, you know, da, 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 da. Uh -huh. and as the uh -huh. price of production for, uh, filmed media gets lower and lower, I actually think the future is really machinima. Um, I think mm. you're going to be able to make movies that look like Game of Thrones in Unreal Engine yeah. 7 or 8 in yeah. the next decade or two. We've even seen game engines get used in, in major Hollywood productions. Like, like yeah. Mandalorian, I think, made heavy use of oh, Unreal yeah. Engine stuff. Yeah, most of their environments are just straight out Unreal. That's cool. Um, so yeah, that that's a really exciting possibility out on the prize, and they need to they need to uh, conquer the uncanny valley, um, which <laughs> is fine. It gives, gives me time to get Small my problem. stuff in order. Um, again, like because I was able to say to myself, "This is the reason for doing what I'm doing for making this IP." Uh, I I can not be diverted by things like spectacle, for instance. Okay, because. If if it was all about what's really exciting to me, I would be trying to develop the, the TV series right now. Okay. Right. Okay. And I'd be putting the cart in front of the horse mm. uh, because mm -hmm. really, in order to make the world more lo loving with stories, 
the stories are what needs to be figured out, right? Uh And it's like, how does one do that? What kind of stories are going to accomplish this? That, to me, requires experimentation. Uh It requires um, an examination of the context, getting stuff out there, hearing back from people. You know, it's just, it's a long, big process that can't be shortcutted, you know? And Mm -hmm. so... I'm I'm kind of almost glad that my ultimate dream is contingent on technology that hasn't been developed yet. So, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. by the time I'm 60 or 70, I will be the wizened old uh, <laughs> TV producer uh, uh-huh. wizard who's making, you know, my Tales from Talafar TV series and uh, or nice. again, whatever, whatever nice. the media of the day is. Yeah. OK, so I want to dig into tale, Tales. Is it Tales of Talafar or Tales from Talafar? TFT. Tales from Telfar, great, uh, and and I, th- th- this is th- this is so interesting. I'm so interested in this. But um, before I do that, I just want to say that um, I really p- part of the reason I wanted to have you on is because this part of you, I watching your content, I've I've seen is that you care a lot about not just what you make but why you make it, and this is a major interest of mine because I I think like the way you started. I have a stable job that pays my bills. And when I take time to talk to people and make content, it's after my day job. And it's it's like my second job that I don't get paid for, at least yet. Yeah. <laughs> and yet. so I, I, I have to spend a lot, yes, yet. That's the operative word and the hopeful word. Uh, yeah. um, and I have to spend a lot of time asking myself, why am I doing this? Because sometimes I just crush myself under my own boot. Um, and the the benefit of doing that is if there is one in terms of lifestyle changes is far off um so and i, I actually, actually tweeted out the other day like uh that there are just kind of one-off sentiment like that there's a, there's a lot of talk about how to stream but not a lot of talk about why to stream and i see yeah. a lot of people out there doing the things you're supposed to do like you're supposed to do giveaways to get people to increase your numbers to get subscribers and I know the way the numbers work on streaming and YouTube. I know how hard it is to make meaningful income there. And I'm not sure I understand the whys of the people who are doing that. But you, with you, Josh, I feel like I see your why because you talk about it and you're open about it. And to connect your why with, with your values, what you want, hope to pass on to your sons and what you hope to bring forth into the world with these stories is incredibly I can't think of enough good adjectives. Fascinating is definitely one, and uh, something that I really admire would be the other thing. So I really want to underline that. that. Let's not be too rose-colored here. You know, all (laughs) humans tell themselves a story about why they're doing a thing, and then, you know, the real reasons are deep and dark and and treacherous and multifaceted. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure that there are parts of me that are doing this purely for ego, you know, I, I, I'm trying to think of a, I definitely not for money <laughs> because uh-huh. Uh-huh. again, I'm well aware the chances of actually succeeding at launching a franchise are one in a million and uh-huh. it just is what it is. But it is like, I have a creative passion and energy inside of me that's going to be going full steam regardless. Right. Why not direct it with my values? Right. So I mm-hmm. think that's, or, or what I purport my values to be, what I strive for my values yeah. to be. That, that's the story that I tell myself. And as long as I feel like I'm like I am actually like living towards those mm-hmm. um, those values, then I think I'm doing all right again. 
someone sitting next to me might be like, you're not really doing it for those reasons. And yeah, I would be open to that criticism. (laughs) (laughs) As we all should be, as we all should be. Yeah. Uh, No, like, so what's the, I read somewhere recently that there's this idea, this evolutionary theory that the reason that the, that the main function that the human brain has is of rationalizing our actions and our emotions. Uh, yeah, the the elephant and writer analogy in uh, let's see, I think it's Jonathan Hates uh, better okay. uh, or sorry, uh, the Righteous Mind uh, yeah. is really good. I, I love it. So it's basically like you can imagine the rational part of the brain as a writer that sits on top of an elephant's head. Yes, the elephant is the rest of the brain. And it's just doing what it does. <laughs> and the writer is kind of like trying to make suggestions. You could do this or you could do that. But mostly what the writer yes. is doing is explaining why the elephant's doing what it's doing. Yes. And giving, giving, uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, telling stories about why it did what it did. <laughs> I love that analogy. I'm sure that, that Jonathan Hayes, who I've heard it from too, like on a Joe Rogan podcast or something. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's. Uh, yeah, that's- and it, the, I like the using the word writer to describe the, the process because it implies storytelling and how intrinsic mm. the uh, our need to tell a story about, to tell ourselves a story about the world and to tell the world a story about us are to how we, how we act day in, day out. Well, speaking of stories, Tales from Telefar. Yes, it's so a good story. You have a book there. It's called The Scarred King, Book One, Exile. So... How many books are we th- are we talking about? Well, so we currently have two that are published. Uh-huh. Uh huh. They're on Amazon. You can get them on paperback or ebook. We have a total of twelve books written. Wow. Now, holy shit. Um, yeah. So this is just one of those like ridiculous, fortuitous things about. Uh, okay, Let, let's let's start with this baseline. I okay. have almost every privilege that a person could have in the west you know i'm a white male uh christian background uh you know work in the tech industry i I got a full head of hair right there with you except for the hair thing (laughs) now on top of all of this i have a mom who happens to be a science fiction author oh that helps (laughs) yeah so you know i've been i was doodling i guess would be a uh a word to use on this yeah. world doing the world building part of tales from talafar since uh, like i said since high school um it was when i moved back over here and um began was able to reconnect with my parents mm-hmm. um i think mm-hmm. i mentioned my ex-wife hated my parents and yes. she had a never-ending campaign to poison our relationship so when she was out of the picture i was able to reconnect with my parents and um my mom who has written several science fiction novels and oh. and been published in various places um was like you know i, I was telling her about the world that i was developing and she said well how about i write a, a story in it and i was oh. like huh Seems too early because I haven't designed everything yet. Um, now, looking back, and, and this was, it must have been about 15 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, looking back, I, I wish I could tell myself back then, secret uh, here, you can never world build an entire world. Like, uh-huh. No one can do that. It's uh-huh. literally impossible. Uh, <laughs> 
I, I do have interesting ideas, and I hope we'll loop back around to this, about okay. crowdsourcing this project. But for now, ah, yes. as an individual or yeah. even a duo, no one is going to know all the things you need to know about fashion and culture and science and, and plumbing and, mm -hmm. you know, coinage. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> that you need to do to, to create an entire world. So it was actually really fortuitous that uh, she was both available and willing and happy to do this. And so, yeah, she, uh, you know, I, I had an idea for the, the first story. You know, I knew, for instance, that we wanted to have a globetrotting quest type of story because uh. I'm developing this world. We need to put a character through the ringer to yeah. like experience this world and really like surface what are the things I haven't figured out yet you know what how are how are we going to approach uh, just an infinite sounds very of, vertical slicey yeah pretty much it's uh -huh. pretty much a telepar vertical slice is what okay. this first trilogy ended up being uh -huh. um so yeah uh we kind of developed the story together she did the majority of the actual like writing because mm -hmm. Um, another thing that I've learned throughout the years is that um, I like to think as an artist, hey, I've been doing art for a long time. I can make a map. I can mm -hmm. uh, make a sculpture. I can make a painting. I can uh, make a font. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Like all of these things seem so like related and, and overlapping in the Venn diagram of skills. And what I've learned is that that Venn diagram, it's not like that. It's more like, you know, there's there's like a 10, 20 percent overlap uh -huh. and learning to make a font or a, a world map, et cetera, et cetera, is another year undertaking of just mm. like learning. It, well, in order to do something that's at like uh, industry standard quality. Right. OK. Right. Um, yeah. And so but writing like writing a novel that's not a year task. That's like a lifetime task to get mm -hmm. really good at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my mom had been doing it for 30-ish years at that point. Mm -hmm. So she had the technical and artistic chops to really do it justice and do it right. And so that's really what kickstarted things. Um, she, you know, she wrote the original trilogy back in the uh, mid-aughts, I would guess. Mm -hmm. um, and it took this long to get to the point where, I think it was 2019, we just got this one published, mm. where I was doing a lot of visual development, uh, a lot of editing. We would do a lot of back and forth because um, one of my goals when it comes to the franchise, I mentioned, you know, working at ArenaNet taught me a lot about franchise management. Okay. And so I'm taking a lot of lessons away from that. Um, Interesting. And also examining other franchises. You know, you look at Lord of the Rings, you look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Star yeah. Wars, etc. Yeah. Like they all have very interesting um, stories just about the franchise mm -hmm. and how the individual releases of those franchises impacted the franchise as a whole and mm -hmm. how they interrelate. Those things are really interesting to me because in my mind, no one has done it well. No. Nope. Uh -huh. And I, I think I have a theory about this. The reason it's never been done well is because none of those franchises were started from a uh, a universal or a, a pan media approach, mm. as in they all started with one artifact, be it a comic book, a novel, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a movie, mm -hmm. etc. And then all of the other like side media from that are were considered sort of ancillary um, and um, not much effort, some effort, but not much effort 
has been put into keeping a, a canon that respects everything together. Right. And I think that's because you can't retrofit that. It has to be baked in from the very beginning of the franchise. This idea that, so my idea is if you read it in the novel and you watch the, the TV version of that novel, it's not going to be like the difference between the Harry Potter novel and the movie where mm -hmm. some characters are not there or a different character says that line because it's more convenient for the, you know, the pacing, blah, 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 blah. Um, mm. I have a theory that I need to prove with action uh, that you don't need to change the story to give a, uh, to put it in a different media. Mm -hmm. I think you need to, you need to be flexible in what you show and when you show it and how you show it. But I don't think you need to actually yeah. change things. So like um, this this story or this moment will be will be good for a book versus this would be better for for cinema because of what right. has to happen in it. That kind of idea. Exactly. And you don't have to contradict a thing. You can show it from a different character's perspective. Right. You could show it in a different sequence, uh, in a different order. But that doesn't mean that it happened in a different order. Right. OK. Um, at characters who have inner thoughts and inner monologues, there are other ways to articulate or that character is no longer as um, focused on mm -hmm. in the visual media mm -hmm. because they are more of a thinker type character. So mm -hmm. that I have lots of, again, theories about ways to do uh -huh. this, but I don't think um, or well, it's very rare that someone has been empowered, an author has been empowered to make sure that the visual representation of their story is uh, non-contradicting. Mm -hmm. So the closest we get is like J.K. Rowling. She got a lot of power. Right. Um, and she took the advice of a lot of the, the infrastructure that exists mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to, you know, to translate um, media from, from novel to uh to movie. Mm -hmm. uh, she was not a filmmaker, obviously. And I think in order to make the fine grained decisions to keep everything consistent, you need to really like be Im immersed and experienced mm -hmm. in both, both elements. Mm -hmm. And I think because it's rarely a priority to have them not contradict, it's, it, it's easily sacrificed on the altar of, production schedules and budget and you know yeah. etc so serving the needs um, of the product yeah and and another big part of that is that and this is breaking down now another trend that i perceive to continue and will be good for me and my franchise uh -huh. is this idea of very um bespoke or expected times basically so <laughs> a tv show should be half an hour or an hour a movie should be between one and a half to two and a half hours. Okay. You know, the, these, these kind of um, arbitrary times that are a relic, you know, of for various commercial reasons. Yeah, the needs they are of the what medium. they are. Yeah, that a lot of them yeah. are not here anymore because of streaming, et cetera. Yep. And so, yeah, to the idea of taking, you know, my, my novel here and turning it into a TV series where you know, maybe one episode covers one chapter, maybe an episode covers five chapters, mm -hmm. you know, maybe several, ch maybe it's put in completely different order, but it's still the same story. Mm -hmm. Right. And, or maybe an episode is 15 minutes and another episode is two hours and that's okay. I don't, you know, 
It's like what serves the story best and the experience of like being along in that uh, mm-hmm. in that story. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's starting to drive uh, the creative decisions more than the commercial side of things mm-hmm. um, used to. So I'm excited about that, and and I find that so those two things the the creative control of an authorial intent that has a clear. I guess that this might be another another element of that has a clear idea of the thematic reason for a story to exist. Right. Right. So I, another example of this is the Chronicles of Narnia movies, hmm. where the movies were made by people who who had a completely different worldview than C.S. Lewis. Right. And that's fine. But they just either didn't understand what he was trying to do or didn't care about it or thought it wasn't commercially viable and just chose to focus on completely different elements of the story to the point where it's just like, what's the point of even adapting this story? Just make a different story, you know, because there are important themes and messages that the author intended that are just completely neglected or, Mm -hmm. you know, turned on their head. And and how important is it to like, how important is the honoring of the the intent and the theming versus the honoring of the specific details and actions and character moments like what do you think that is more powerful to you i think that my goal would be to sacrifice neither but, uh-huh. but again I, with hard. the caveat that details can be presented in many different ways uh-huh. you know you could hear a sound from off screen or you can see an explosion or you can have someone relay it in a in a piece of dialogue. They remember a thing happening, and all of these things can point to the same event, right? Okay. okay. So, yeah, I, I think there are lots of creative ways to to get both. Uh-huh. I just think it. No one has had the the impetus or the uh, enthusiasm about doing so that I do. Ah, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, I'm I'm thinking too about some of like the franchise gore that I've witnessed and what what your approach how your approach could be a response to that. Like, um, so mm-hmm. I love Star Wars growing up too. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was shown the original trilogy when I was a kid. And um, I, I think my mom was pregnant with me and went to go see uh, uh, um, episode six in the theater while she was pregnant with me. So that that's nice. the uh, supposed justification of why I love Star Wars. And uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. It, it was part of the formula. So... Uh, and, and when I was in my my teenage years, I got really into the extended universe uh, books. Probably read oh, yeah. 50, 60, 70, 80 books in a couple of years of Star gone. Wars. Man, yeah. Man, like like the I, I don't know if, if if you're familiar with it, but like the like the the Timothy Zahn trilogy, like Air, yeah, yeah. Air of the Empire. Right. I, I said the words Admiral Thrawn, but I realized I oh, said you it said in Thrawn. such a choked, excited way that you couldn't understand it. Oh, Thrawn. <laughs> I'm I'm yeah. I, I, I I and then didn't they bring Thrawn back into like Clone Wars and stuff? It's in some of the newer Star Wars. Like he's been repurposed. I, not I think seen that animated stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. me neither. Me neither. But anyway, um, and then you know then that they basically, when Force Awakens needed to be made, they were like, you know what? None of this was real. None of this was canon. And man, that was a major feels bad man to me. I uh, yeah, I did not like that. Yes. And I totally understand why it happened. The, the behind the scenes of the Star Wars franchise in general is one of the most fascinating franchise stories that you can imagine. Okay. Uh, just, you know, having the like the 
man behind it who had a hundred percent control uh-huh. for for the majority of it, but at the same time hardly cared at all about the ancillary, you know, the extended universe stuff. Yeah. And yeah. then when he goes, to, you know, to make his thing again, I don't think like. I think I remember an interview or someone had asked him, you know, what he knew about those novels. And he pretty much yeah. was like, I never read them, you know, <laughs> yeah. no idea. <laughs> and it's like, how, how is this like your most famous, biggest work and biggest accomplishment in your life? Yeah. And you just don't even care about what other people are treating doing, like in your playground that you designed. Yeah. Treating um, the books like, like, like merchandise, like, like toys or, stuff like that yeah to, to yeah and and the comics and the games and blah 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 and so and w- what's interesting is like you know i i know lots of people who have worked on the, the various star wars games and uh, actually the guy that i'm doing um the graphic novel tales from talifar graphic novel with oh. right now worked on some star wars comics for for marvel okay and so i've, I've heard lots of stories about lucasfilm's uh, requirements and like how they'll change things kind of in ways that seem incredibly arbitrary. So there is a mechanism at work by which there is some creative control exerted over the ancillary material. But then it's like you're paying that price for no reason because it all gets ignored anyways. <laughs> it's yeah. like, like someone's trying to I justify their job or something. Yeah. And, and the whole like... And Lucas, just as a creator, is fascinating. Um, you know how the prequels ended up, and I know I have to be careful around this because you know, old fogey like me, everyone of my generation hated the prequels. It was yeah. just a complete betrayal of everything, and blah 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 blah. I was more um, on your side about that stuff, by the way. So yeah, but but I people, sympathize. you know, 10, 20 years younger than me, you know, who were like grew people up who on saw it when they were kids, love it. Yeah. And Absolutely. N- now we have this 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 uh, new wave of Star Wars fans who didn't don't understand why why people didn't like those movies, and yeah. it makes me it makes me sympathetic with people who thought things like um like Ewoks were dumb. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have a I have a, a friend. Uh, well, uh, you know Peter Freeze. He was yeah. a writer at Arena Net for a yeah. long time. Um, yeah, he was one of those. You know, he's uh, I don't know maybe five years older than me. Okay, but. Uh, he, yeah, he was a Ewok hater, you know, because he was a teenager when the Ewoks came out. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, all right. You can't like the Ewoks if you're a cool teenager, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I've been feeling that way about uh, uh, the Gungans. And, uh, you yeah. know, there's there's so much to pick apart about those movies. Um, but, I mean, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, Hayden Christensen, the guy who played Anakin? Yeah. Apparently he's coming back for the the new Obi Wan pick uh, yeah. thing, so that's that's pretty darn cool. Yeah, it's but it's one of those things where it just breaks my brain and makes me so sad that like this is a great example you just mentioned. Like, okay, so we're making connections between the the various you know the different eras of the IP, uh-huh. but it's like the more connections that are made the more painful it is that certain connections are ignored, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to, mm. As far as like my verisimilitude or really what it comes down to is my investment in the IP. Like, oh, yeah. It's just like, is this real? Is this not? 
does this matter to yeah. you know everything else that's going on? And it, because I don't know, I guess be, I'm like Star Wars is a magical world to me. It's a it's a sandbox. It's a playground. <laughs> And I've never really cared about the main storyline of Star Wars. I've huh. always cared about the world and visiting the planets and seeing the exotic aliens and the interesting technology and ships and droids and yeah. right. Yeah. So, so the the, the fact that uh, Star Wars was like so focused on the Star uh, on the, the Skywalker, Skywalker saga, yeah, blah blah. blah. Um, and then the the last movie was just like the ultimate like kick in the butt. Oh my in that god! Regard. What a face here is everything that you, Josh Foreman, don't care about anymore in Star Wars. Yeah. Compacted into one movie. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. It's, I'm it, sure it's that we could do a whole anyway, two or three yeah. hours just on that. We could. Let's not though. The important takeaway for me, I think you highlighted this. Uh, well, obviously, you you triggered me with uh, bringing up Star Wars <laughs> as as the franchise that that I'm hope that I'm you know my Telefar series is a reaction against um, uh -huh. as far as the the management of the franchise is uh -huh. concerned. And I think it's one of those things because it is my favorite franchise. It is also the most painful to see it, in my opinion, fumbled. Um, again, not about the story, not because there's women or Asians in there, not because, you know, it's simply because they don't honor their, the whole, uh, tapestry right. that has been created over 40 years, you know? Yeah. And the, the sense that you come away with is that first you think that they, they don't care about it, about, about what makes Star Wars good or what makes it special. And then you realize that they don't know what makes Star Wars good or special. Yeah. Like there's no man behind the curtain is the sense you end up getting. Exactly. It's it's a um getting back to the theme thing. Okay. And I think articulating the values, me articulating my values to my kids, I see uh you can resonate or or you can do the same thing with your with a franchise. Here mm -hmm. are the design pillars or the values that we are trying to communicate with this franchise. Filter your work through that. Like, mm -hmm. I am happy to have different authors. I mean, my hope is that one day, you know, we, we make some giant hit. To, you know, one of the books that we write is a, is a Harry Potter style success. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, there are numerous authors banging on our door. Please let us write for Tales from Talifar. Uh -huh. And then we're like, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> Everything you write, it goes through this filter. There's a a values filter, which, mm -hmm. which maybe sounds a little fashy, but it's, <laughs> but it's not because when people hear that, when I just said it out loud, what I'm thinking is that people are like, Ooh, so there's some kind of like acid test. Like it can't have too much sex or violence or, mm -hmm. or, you know, a political, this kind of political view or that, right. That's not what I'm talking Gotta about. Kind of run it through the propaganda um, team first. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, but the biggest filter is, here is a database and that is kept of everything that has happened that is in the, the canon, right? Okay, okay. If you write something and it contradicts something that came before, mm -hmm. you're going to have to change it before it goes out. However, the trade-off is you now have the power to make something that will be true in perpetuity for this franchise forever, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So Timothy Zahn, back in the 90s, his you know, characters would be canon in the new Disney movies if <laughs> if I had run the franchise, right? So yeah. that 
so while it would be a burden for a lot of authors to have these creative strictures uh, in the sense that they can't contradict other stuff, also have this amazing opportunity to like really make their mark. Sure, and and also just answers to questions. Um, I'm, I look at uh, like talking about more franchise core. I look at the way Game of Thrones, the the TV series, ended up um, mm -hmm. where that that TV show so clearly lost its rudder when it lost the the base material from from George the Mart the yeah the uh, the guy you know the, the the main guy behind the franchise when they started going off book all of a sudden they they lost their true north um yeah the, the most fascinating criticisms that i see of the last seasons you know it entirely had to do with you know here is a character that has been defined over you know years yes and people feel like they know this character and understand this character and their motivations uh -huh. and so you build a mental model in your head of that character and how they would react to things mm -hmm. and then suddenly they just do completely random different things yeah and that would that feels viscerally like a betrayal like oh i never knew you you know that yeah. it's almost it's, it's almost akin to an affair in that way like Ooh. because you build this intimacy over years with these characters and you know suddenly they're yeah. not these characters uh, yeah yes. and like one of my favorite so i i love um Maybe no for you. Um, I love when TV shows release one episode a week. And the reason I love this is it's not because I don't like binging stuff. I do binge stuff from time to time when it comes to, to my watching habits. But I like to have the chance to talk about stuff between the releases. I like the community conversation. I like the broader, uh, the, the ability to, to be a participant in the world almost that that affords. And yeah. as episodes for Game of Thrones were being published, one of my favorite things to talk about was the importance of John's heritage, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think about something that you said about connections not being made and about how that, that, that part of the story that was almost in a way bigger in the fan story of the world than in the actual on-screen story of the world. They didn't put yeah. a lot of screen time into talking about that, but it was a mystery that was out there and everyone just ran with it. Um, and how yeah, sad it was, it was to not have that that Chekhov's gun be fired at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. It, yeah, it seemed like it seemed like it was dropped. That the hint was dropped enough that this is going to be the linchpin or the cornerstone of whatever the final some dramatic you know, event. Thing is gonna be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It did uh, yeah. So one thing I'm never going to do in Tales from Telafar is start a serial without knowing where it's going. Okay. Or knowing the ending. Okay. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I've seen that happen so many times. Yeah. So many different uh, IPs that it's just like, I don't know why that's even allowed anymore. Yeah. I, it it kind of blows my mind. Like, I think it's a, a legacy from TV and maybe even going back to, like you know, the, yeah, well, going back to, to comics, I, I, I guess like, a Christmas Carol, you know, in the 1800s was written episodically, right? Okay. Um, but I'm almost sure that he knew where he was going with it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I, certain things baffle me. And it's, it's also one of those things where, you know, I'm speaking 
probably a bit out of arrogance in thinking like, oh, I can fix this problem the guy. in this industry that's adjacent yeah. to me, but I don't actually have experience in. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, sometimes it takes a person from outside to just like Kool-Aid man through the wall and be like, I'm doing it this way. And sometimes it ends up, you know, working. So yeah. that's my, my uh, you know, swing for the fences sort of thing. Yeah, no, I love it. I think it takes a, it, it takes a, a brave person to put themselves in the position of being a fool when they're already good at something else, you know, um, to, to put themselves back in the position of being the learner, being the, someone who's new to something and trying to do something big. Um, yeah, I think it's that's cool, one dude. thing that I've actually uh, shifted in quite a bit over these past couple of years, as huh. I've been trying to, to focus more on the management of the franchise um, in that, like, well, originally I was doing 100% of the work. Right. I was coming up with the stories. I was making the pictures. I was mm -hmm. coming. I was doing the world building. Uh, then my co-author slash mom came on board. Uh -huh. And now I had someone to, sh to share a lot of that responsibility and do most of the heavy lifting on the writing element. And so I was in mostly a supervisory role in that sense uh -huh. of like, OK, I'm still doing world building. But now that she's writing, she's just coming up with world building that is necessary as she goes happens right? on the way yeah. I, you know she she created uh this whole species of the tesla deck because uh. she needed she needed a sidekick for bomark as he traveled a, around the world you know because you for a, a globe trotting adventure in a brand new world that that people aren't familiar with that uh -huh. doesn't lean on a lot of the traditional fantasy tropes okay. you have to have a fish out of water character right. that has to have things explained to them um, otherwise you end up just like info dumping randomly and that's just terrible. Right. Mm -hmm. So she knows all these things because she's an author for 30 years, huh. 40 years now. And so, um, she creates this guy out of whole cloth and his whole culture and his whole, th this and that. And I mean, f this, this, it's fantastic. He's one of the best characters in fiction. As far oh. as I'm concerned, I'm a little biased, but read the trilogy. <laughs> I think you'll agree. Okay. Um, and so the, the, yeah, the, World building is happening in another brain now, right? Along with mine, I'm mm -hmm. still doing visual development. I need to feed that back to her. You know, mm -hmm. the, she created the character with certain descriptions. I modified it and added things to it because, you know, some of the, sometimes I actually see this a lot in fantasy uh, writing as opposed to games where there's such a strong visual element. Mm -hmm. But in writing, almost all authors, when they describe um, uh, fashion, uh, food, also uh, ar uh, architecture. They are almost always leaning very heavily on tropes. Mm -hmm. You know, Grecian architecture, or you know, a, a jester that has a three-pointed hat. Uh, you know, the, all this stuff. And as a visual designer, I'm always saying, okay, I you want to make I new stuff. Yeah, well, I, I understand why this trope is powerful and resonant and a shorthand, most importantly, yeah. readers get it and then they fill in the details, right? But because I'm doing visual development that will eventually be part of a graphic novel and a movie and a TV show and a video game, I have to like get into the nitty gritty of these details and I'm adding novelty as I go, <laughs> which means putting tweaks and spins on the descriptions. And uh, fortunately, she's, she's open to that. Um, she grumbles a little bit from time to time, but ultimately <laughs> she's like, it's your world, Josh. I'm, you know, I'm just having fun, you know, do, doing this stuff with you on it. Uh, it's all good. That's really so, cool. 
That's really cool. Yeah, so it, it's kind of like um, partnership on easy mode for now. And as I get, um, yeah. and, and like I said, I'm now working with a, a friend who has worked professionally in comics. Mm-hmm. And I'm learning a lot about about that art form. I've mm-hmm. never made my own comic before. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing our, you know, my own like spin on it, on the graphic novel um, and making sure that he's very, um, he understands very clearly that I'm stepping into a new domain that I don't understand. And I'm relying on him to tell me when I'm breaking rules so that I can break them with purpose. Or I can say, mm-hmm. oh, I was breaking that rule for no real reason except ignorance. So right. I'm happy to amend that and not break that rule now. Sure. Right? This is something that is, you'll see this in the video game industry from time to time when a Hollywood person drops in and like, yo, I'm making a game now. And it turns out to uh-huh. be like, you know, 90% uh-huh. cutscene because that's what they know. Uh-huh. Right? And it's like, so th- that's what I'm trying not to do. I'm trying to be very respectful of the mediums that I'm going into and and making sure that I'm working with collaborators and and showing them the deferment and respect that they deserve as being, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of arbit- arbiters of what is good within that medium. And yeah, just again, breaking rules is fine, but know why you're doing it and do it judiciously. Mm-hmm. Don't just randomly change things just because. Right. What's the uh, the saying that I've heard about people? People want to see like eighty percent of what they know and twenty percent of what they don't. Something yeah, like that. the novelty, the novelty versus uh, tradition or trope or uh-huh, what, whatever uh-huh. you want to call it. That um, and that's actually interesting. I was I don't remember if I was listening to a podcast or reading an article about it, but they were kind of talking about the different psychological. It's different for different people. Some right. people want 90% familiar. Oh, it's familiar versus novelty, right? So okay. 90% okay. familiar versus 10% uh, novel. And that's like um, in, in the way that Dungeons and Dragons is 90% Lord of the Rings, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But they just like add a bunch of random other stuff to it. Uh-huh. Uh, I shouldn't say random. I, I have lots of friends who work on it and they're very deliberate when they're, with their additions to Lord of the Rings. Well-selected um, <laughs> things. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah. well rolled <laughs> um yeah and, and, but then you take uh I, I'm, I'm trying to think of a like super original ip that like derivates in radical ways um i because I'm, I'm thinking like um the whole like late 70s through 80s fantasy um where they were mashing together sci-fi and fantasy you know he-man heavy metal magazine uh-huh. um uh, you know, lots of these different artists were playing with that idea of of putting these two like genres smashed together aesthetically, mm-hmm. uh, the fantasy and the sci-fi, and so that that was like a whole thing, and it spawned a generation that has you know could kind of continue that tradition. Um, but the 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 interesting thing is always like, where are you uh, deciding how much is too much weird? stuff right Mm -hmm. and the more you add novelty the smaller your audience is going to get the more niche it's going to get right um and so yeah that's what i'm trying to do at talifar is walk this fine line where i'm trying to lean on thematic tropes but not visual tropes uh Uh which so for instance we have dwarves essentially which are 
people who live underground, who mine for a living. They love mining. John. But uh, all of Drinking. my design, I've, gave, I've given myself a constraint of scientific plausibility. And that drives the design in really interesting directions okay. that because it's a filter that's not in my control, I can't arbitrarily like choose a direction. It, it's it it's like a it's like a randomizer for my design, which mm-hmm. is I think is healthy because it leads me in directions I didn't expect. Right. And so I get that novelty punch. So I just ask it myself, restricts you. Okay. Which is yeah, useful if, when if you're trying you to create underground. Yeah, if you have an underground dwelling people, how is this going to, what is their biology going to be like? What is their society going to be like? And just question all of those things. So they are completely different. They're not humanoid, for one. Uh, You know, they're they're like a mix of, uh, yeah, I I looked up animals that live underground, right? And Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm, drew mm -hmm. a lot of inspiration from uh, naked mole rats, from... Uh, not too much from naked mole rats. Uh, they are mostly um, suddenly I can't I can't remember the word. Uh, honey bun is the little. Um, they're so cute, <laughs> and suddenly I can't remember what they're called. Okay. Oh no, they're they're they're. I'm sorry. I'm just listening. I I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh okay. They're related to armadillo. Wow wow what a terrible. <laughs> they're cute and they live underground they're like my favorite animal but yeah it's it's been a long day anyway <laughs> animals that live underground uh-huh. share certain characteristics uh-huh. they share certain um or well depending on if they are, are um social or not uh-huh. ones that live underground and are social uh tend to be eusocial which means that they are um very more hive oriented in a sense where mm-hmm. they they you know are working for the greater good as opposed to individualistic um mm-hmm. uh motives and such so in, anyway all of that fed into this very original culture that ended up being spat out by our algorithm more or less okay. <laughs> you know it, we, we get to guide it a little bit with choices yeah. uh, for instance not making them look like naked mole rats um, yeah that's a good one but <laughs> We already have those in Guild Wars too, right? Yes. So <laughs> I'll hail the military. So, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's it's a fun process, and it leads us in interesting directions. And I, what I'm hoping is that it provides enough familiarity with these tropes that the novelty of them being different enough right. um, is it's a sweet spot. That's what I'm hoping to hit is a sweet spot. Gotcha. You use the word algorithm. Which makes me think, yeah. um, like, so I've I've heard the idea, and I, I think it's true. I found in my own, my own my own experience that sometimes if if creativity isn't coming, the best thing to do is to find a find a useful restriction for what you're trying to mm-hmm. do. Because being restricted provides ways to be creative that that you don't have to be if if you can do whatever you want. And and you then use the word algorithm, which made me think of like almost like like um. Like, like a seed for a Minecraft world, and like you're yeah. kind of seeding your world with this, this, this uh, uh, scientific plausibility uh, thing. And it's it seems to me it's not necessarily about um, a goal of having of being scientifically plausible. It's more about like I need something to make this different and to seed this. What's it going to be? And yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that, that, that's let me tell you, there, there are three reasons. There okay. are three reasons why I settled on this algorithm 
or you could call it a heuristic, or you could call it uh, a um, filter, for instance. Okay. This is the number one um, advice. Whenever a new uh, world builder is asking me for advice, you okay. know, I'm thinking of building, doing world building. What's what's the first thing I should do? I always say, pick a theme, pick uh -huh. something as a filter. It could be like gemstones. It could be uh, low gravity. It could be, you know, it, mm -hmm. just pick mm -hmm. a thing. Um, also, there is an amazing array online of like idea generators that it, there's there's level design generators, there's world building generators, um, and you could just click next, next, next until something appeals to you. Uh -huh. And you're like, ah, okay. But why scientific plausibility appealed to me is three reasons. Okay. Um, I was raised a very scientific analyze uh, okay. My mom and dad are both like, very just kind of in that modality of, of thinking and analyzing. Okay. Okay. Um, my, my mom actually taught classes on a scientifically plausible alien biology Holy shit. Um, at a college. Uh, so yeah, she, that's just kind of her thing. And I was uh -huh. raised in that milieu. Um, also with a overly large vocabulary and as a result I'm a sesquipedalian and I turn off a lot of people by saying words they don't understand and that and that's a That's the first one you've gotten I... me with. All all the other ones you <laughs> said I do, but that one I've never heard of. I love the word sesquipedalian because it means exactly what it sounds like, which is someone who uses overly long words. All right. I'm going to have to put that one in my quiver too. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> my two favorite words are, are that one because it's so apt. And then the opposite of that one is pulchritude, because it means of great beauty, and it is the ugliest word. <laughs> yeah, okay. I dig it. I love irony. Anyway, <laughs> okay, scientific plausibility. A, I was raised with it. Uh, B, as a filter, uh, I already mentioned this, it drives my brain in unique directions that I wouldn't necessarily expect because I'm doing research that uh -huh. forces me to, to go in, in uh, unexpected directions. And then C or three, I can't remember the, how I was listing these. Um, it gives me the opportunity. Hey, this is this is actually looping back. I said I hoped we would loop back to this and we're uh -huh. doing it right now. Oh. It allows me to crowdsource the world building. Ah. And here's how. The real world, scientific plausibility is accessible to everyone, meaning uh -huh. that you can critique my work, you can read my book, and you could read something and be like, I don't think that would actually work that way. I know a lot about the tides and uh -huh. this blah, 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 blah. And you could write into me and I'll be like, uh, you're right. Now that I see what you're saying, I'm going to change it in the next mm -hmm. version. So that's why I have... Uh, you know, again, taken from my experience as a video game designer on a live service game, you know, I'm going to have patches. So this is version <laughs> 1.0 of the book, and there will be a version 1.2, etc. as I get feedback. Um, so it also allows me to do cool things such as get vetting from professionals. So I have mm -hmm. paid a geologist to vet my uh Everything that has to do with the the tectonic plates that I designed, you know, I built, I designed the planet from scratch, all the tectonic plates, the, where they had moved from, the different sub, subduction, mm -hmm. convergence, mm -hmm. flip plates, blah, blah, That's blah. That's cool, man. The origin, you know, where the mountains are and why they are and then how that affects the weather patterns, blah, blah, blah. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I just, I reached out, I went on to Quora or uh, geology Facebook groups and I'm like, 
hey, I need someone to look over some stuff. I'll give you an honorarium of 100 bucks, and uh-huh. please tell me what I got wrong, right? Now, what I hope that this grows into, again, predicated on like having a hit that people actually care about at right. some point, right. is that I will get, I will be able to tap into that uh, nerd energy that exists in the universe. The people that debate on Star Wars forums about how a lightsaber would work, how the uh-huh. warp drive, you know, how the Holdo maneuver, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Oh, like, yeah, all these, all, there's so much creative, intelligent energy that is being pumped into a vacuum that will never listen to them except for themselves. You know, it, it's the fun oh, of yeah. engaging with themselves. I plan to be the franchise that will listen, that will capture that energy and do oh. something with it. And I think that provides an interesting value proposition to the world that has not existed yet. So I like that. I like that. Taking the uh, taking the waste of the system and using it as fertilizer. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay, that's a. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about this, Josh. I. So, I imagine also, and uh, viewer Henry is pointing this out that probably having scientific plausibility as a, I'm uh, like a, a core value um, as a, a filter, as you call it, would serve to probably ground the work in terms of its it's 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 clear theming like it wouldn't seem like something that would be like like a high fantasy work with magic flying everywhere and stuff like that is it more of the grounded type yeah definitely um i think it has a unique flavor because generally grounded fantasy or dark fantasy those two are often inflated um kind of revel in the um I guess the darkness of life. Uh-huh. There's almost always a lot of rape, a lot of death, a lot of like misery or something like that. Yeah. Um, uh, high fantasy tends to deal in, you know, hero of a thousand faces kind of mythopoetic theming, uh-huh. which like is easy to resonate with a person's life because it's so broad and so generic. Right. Like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. I should be good and not be bad because being bad is bad. That's what I take from away from most uh, mythopoetic stuff. And I, I shouldn't denigrate it in the sense like a lot of people, um, and probably myself included, like our sense of a moral compass and stuff is heavily influenced by the mythopoetic stories that we were mm-hmm. raised with. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so there's nothing wrong with that. I just think that there's plenty of it already. Um, so my theory is, is that having a grounded uh, real world fantasy world is that you get the advantage of the novelty of being in, in a fun, exciting place. You get uh-huh. that that feeling of exploration and discovery uh, that you get from high fantasy. But the the grounding of it means that the specific applications of characters living out their lives they're not the Homeric, epic mm-hmm. heroes. They are more specifically like you and me. It, 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 I guess it's kind of like the difference between the DC superheroes versus the Marvel superheroes, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, Spider-Man's got to go to school and pay his bills and blah, blah, blah. But he's also trying to be a hero. Um, so yeah. in that sense, it's like, here is an example of a character living a life in this exotic world that's really fun and captivating to to go through their life, uh-huh. you know, on this 
journey with them, but the lessons taken away from it are less applicable to everyone in the in the like Joseph Campbellian or you know Jungian archetype kind of mm-hmm. way. Okay. But more when they when they do apply to you as an individual who have gone through some kind of life event that is similar enough to this character on Talifar going through it, it hits harder. So mm. sacrificing the broad sort of application to uh, broad but diluted to narrower but stronger, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so my my hope is that that whole like make the world more loving with stories is showing these characters going through these things. And and I also want to make sure that I'm careful not to do not to be a a preachy thing, right? This isn't like every character mm-hmm. is not the virtuous. I'm a good person doing all the right things. You know, I want there to be every kind of story with every kind of character. It's not about saying this character is an object lesson to be followed, but more about seeing that storytelling is about framing the plot in a way that make that creates a theme, right? If you're focused on only plot, like, this is a classic example that we see in our modern day where young, unexperienced people will see characters like Walter White, like Bojack Horseman, etc. Uh, Anti-heroes. Uh, which one is Rick and Morty? Which, which one is the scientist one? I don't know. It, anyway. Not familiar with it. Basically, these a-holes on TV, mm-hmm. the plot is that they are smart. They are... Uh, capable they are you know they are all these amazing things and it's easy to get caught up and see that and say oh these guys are awesome i want to emulate them and be like that they're effective um right whereas the creators of those characters and those stories are saying the opposite are saying right people can have these amazing attributes and still be incredibly toxic and terrible to those around them and have terrible impacts on those around them right so that that's an example of like (laughs) <laughs> you can go heavy-handed, like uh, take uh, an example of an antihero like that, and then mm-hmm. show them dying and in pain, and and every, every you know they've just dis- completely disappointed themselves and others at the end, right. and then it becomes a morality tale, right? Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't be bad like this person, and that's generally just a bad story, right? It's bad storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it, it's good if you're doing a morality tale. But again, those are typically for younger audiences. Who need um, something simpler, yeah. Yeah, so to me, the interesting thing about like what I'm trying to do with my franchise is say, okay, we're starting with this theme mm. of like, what happens when this kind of character is in this kind of situation? Mm-hmm. They're going to do X, Y, and Z, and we're going to see how that plays out. And it happens to be in this exotic, fun, fantasy you know, world so there's that natural draw, but I'm hoping that the takeaway is uh, something that can impact a person's character, a reader's character, and feel sure. like, sure. like this has happened to me um, occasionally that I can recognize. It's probably something that happens on a very granular level, right? I think right. all media impacts us in tiny ways, mm-hmm. there, right? As we experience that media, we're subtly shifted one way or another, our attitudes and opinions and, and that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I'm not expecting to to create a story that is a come to Jesus moment and people read it and it's like Bill and Ted's song and the world becomes peaceful, right? Uh, it's, 
It's more along the line of just subtly a nudge, a nudge to society to be right. like, yeah, here's some values. Maybe they inspire you. Yeah. I think about like the things that would get rolled in on the little TV carts when I was in Sunday school when I was a kid. And you, you just knew to ignore that stuff. You just knew that it wasn't a reflection of anything useful or valuable. Like, uh, and you definitely don't want to make that. Um, but, and I, I like that you mentioned like Breaking Bad, Walter White. Um, that's like an example of a, like a, you can tell a story about, you can tell a story about something with, while the main character embodies everything that's on the other side of it. Like while making yeah. that character relatable because Walter White is the protagonist, the character you relate to. But if you, you know, if, if you got a little bit of horsepower up here, you can see that this is actually a very cautionary tale. It's a, a tragedy. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely something that I hope to explore. Um, <laughs> here's a, here's another man. There's so many things. I think I've written these all down. All right. I worry that I haven't. Here's another big thing I'm hoping to accomplish with this, with this franchise management or a, a okay. strategy. I hope to avoid the deadly mistake that many franchises make of focusing on one kind of story huh. or one character. Okay. So from the outset, uh, you know, <laughs> ha having my mom helping me by writing uh, stories, I'm encouraging her to do different kinds of stories. And I hope as we get different authors into the fold, you know, well, for instance, I asked her to do a Game of Thrones style a political thriller, yeah, right? Like a war. And of the she's roses. like, I just, I can't. I don't understand Machiavellianism. I don't uh -huh. understand why pol politicians do what they do or uh -huh. how they do it. And I'm like, well, I got to respect that. If if you yeah. don't understand it, you're not going to write a good version of that, right? right? But at some point, I will find an author, uh, you know, who who is excited to do a Game of Thrones style political uh, thing in Talafar. Uh -huh. And that'll be great. I want to have mysteries. I want to have romances. I want to have capers. I want to, you know what I mean? Um, all of the these world things, is big enough. Exactly. And I, the, the point being that I want to make sure that if someone encounters a Tales from Talafar, they are not going to come in with the kind of expectations that 90% of people, when they hear Star Wars, they think, oh, this is going to be about Luke Skywalker and the Force. Right. This is going to be about Jedi's and and lightsabers, right? And fathers and sons. Exactly. Uh, the 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 franchise got overly narrowed, and at the points where it did branch out and do really creative, great things, all got pruned away and ignored. Right. And so that's yeah. yeah. I think I I saw uh, a a J.J. Abrams interview, of course, the director of Episode Seven and Nine. Um, mm -hmm where he said something to the effect of, yeah, it probably would have been better if we'd sat down and planned out the new trilogy before we made it. Like, something everyone saw while it was happening. It's, it's such a moment to hear, hear someone in his position say something like that, don't you think? Yeah. You pay $4 billion <laughs> for something, and you're like, you know what? Let's just wing it. <laughs> it's like, I just bought this Ferrari. I'm going to take it off-roading. It'll probably be fine. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, well, I think that the value of a intentionally and centrally understood and themed world to build multi a multimedia property on it makes... And I think it makes sense on a visceral level. Like, 
we've just talked through a, a few of the different horror stories, the things that go on, with the most successful IPs in the world haven't figured out. I think like one of the 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 the, the good stories t- um, or the uh, the ways it has gone well is looking at like the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where they have um, is it Kevin Feige? Is that who's uh, yeah the guy? Well, um, He's now in, he's now in charge of Star Wars, I believe, because he started working on the Mandalorian. But I believe he did a lot of work on, okay. on Marvel as well. Yeah, I don't I don't know exactly, and and I know that there was a lot of improvisation along the way. But you look at the way, um, like it 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 seems the way that those movies at least were were put out gave the sense that they knew what they wanted at some level, maybe not yeah. to the like, kind of level you're talking about, but clearly to a level beyond what we've seen from from star wars from uh like the yeah. new harry potter movies um all these other yeah that's franchises. A, a direction that mm-hmm. i and i know a lot of the big franchises out there are trying to move that way but again my contention would be that unless you start out that way or just like burn it all down and start from the ground Tabula up again Rasa. um yeah. which a lot of like a lot of comics have done, right? They're like, uh-huh. we've exhausted everything at this point. New Spider-Man, new the Thor, new whatever, right? Um, yeah, unless you're willing to do that, which... I, and and again, so Marvel has the cinematic universe, and it's got the comics. And yeah. some of the comics are very similar to the movies because the movies are based on those comics. Mm-hmm. But they're movies, so they're different in a lot of ways, too. And again, that just breaks my... I just don't care anymore. I'm like, <laughs> all right. I don't know one, what's important and what's not. One uh, hard question for you. Uh, this, this, this might be a hard question. Maybe it's easy. I don't know. Um, the sense I get from partaking in a few different multimedia franchises, like ones we've talked about, is that a lot of people tend to gravitate towards one expression of that franchise or another. Oh, I read the books, or I watch the TV shows, or I enjoy I enjoy this video game, or whatever. And it, there aren't necessarily the, the majority of people who enjoy the works of, of uh, a world that's been built aren't necessarily people who experience every single dimension of it. And um, I think that that tends to I, that to me, it seems logically would would be something that people would think about when they're and maybe I've been learned. Sorry, maybe I've been taught to do that by the inconsistencies that. I read a book and I love it and I see a, a, a TV show or a movie and I'm like, oh, this is different. Like, I've been trained to expect that there will yeah. be disagreements, dissonances, and not, not necessarily like, like moment-to-moment things that you kind of forget about. Like, okay, the broom's in the right, the right corner instead of the left corner. Who cares? But more about, like, this character, like, has a different motivation. Like, that's a big problem, a big difference. Or these two characters have been combined into one or, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess the question is like, is is this problem of consistency across different types of media? Is it is it like more? Um, I, I guess I want to hear your impression of of how you think this affects fans of the franchise that aren't on like the rabid on arguing on the forums kind of uh, mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah, no, that's a great question. The what you're kind of speaking to is bang for your buck. From the perspective of those creating the franchise, right? Okay. Okay. Um, and so I I have two basic dispositions towards that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that because what I'm doing is not based on commercial motivation, it's 
an artistic impulse. Mm-hmm. I don't care <laughs> that it's that it's unreasonably expensive to keep everything consistent. Uh-huh. It is because I'm trying to do something that's never been done before. Mm. And I'm trying to do it for a particular reason. Um, as opposed to most franchises, which generally happen by accident, you know, a book, a movie, a whatever will be a surprise hit. Suddenly mm-hmm. now you, there's a franchise. Um, and so, yeah, but I agree with you that there is uh, the vast majority of people. Yeah. Don't care that much that the movie and the book are different. Mm-hmm. You get the people who read the book always complaining that the book is better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um the I, I the outstanding question that I think will be interesting to see should should I get any traction and start to answer these questions mm-hmm. is um, is there an untapped market of people who don't care about genre fiction in these IPs because of this thing that I'm pointing out sure. because of the internal inconsistencies mm-hmm. um, and I I simply have no way to answer that at this point but well you are answering it you're you're making it. Yeah, exactly. We'll see. Uh, you know, I'm going to answer lots of questions through <laughs> through this process if it's successful. Um, Love it. I, yeah. If my one contribution to the world is that I prove that you can make a TV show and a book not contradict each other, boom, uh, I'm historical. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, hey, uh, Josh, I need to take the, the, the break that we promised and talked about earlier, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, just like a five minute break. And we'll uh, come back after. Does that work? Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks. We'll be back in five minutes. Okay, we're back. I'm Deke chatting with Josh Foreman. We've been talking all about the tales from Talfar, the world that he is building to be the world's first scientifically consistent, centrally themed multimedia franchise. Did I miss anything important? That also makes the world more loving with stories. That makes the world more loving with stories. There it is. A, a, a small goal, a modest, yep. a modest That's aim. Anyone could do it, really. Yeah, easy. So, Josh, this is a lot of work. But <laughs> it's one of the main things I'm hearing, among all the other things. So, as someone who, like I, like I mentioned earlier, like as someone who's trying to do something creative in my after work hours, my thankful to have my stable job that pays my bills, but I need something more to pursue the thing that I care about. I think something that could go out into the world and make a difference. Like I really empathize with this, this pursuit. Talk to me about the mechanics. How do you make time for this stuff? Um, oh, hold on. My son is uh, shouting Nicholas Cage's ABCs. Hey, Shane, <laughs> Shane. Oh, wow. So he can interrupt my podcast, but uh, I can't interrupt his call or whatever. <laughs> Where's Nick's ABCs? Nicholas no. Shouting the ABCs? Oh, it's great. You should I'm going to have to look today. this up. All right. Sorry, I completely forgot your question now. Distracted <laughs> by Nicholas Cage shouting the alphabet. As we all would be. Uh, I was asking, how do you make time for all this? I guess that's kind of an appropriate interruption <laughs> on, on brand. It is. Uh, yeah, incredibly apropos. So my secret, and this is something that I see from a lot of... Um, people who do not have kids and people who do have kids mm-hmm. um they they ask me that how do you have so much time like i don't you know people with kids all my time goes into my kids people without kids i don't know what all their time goes into but they don't have time either um uh-huh. <laughs> and i think the secret is 
you have two kids. You go through a horrific divorce and custody battle, uh, horrific uh, teenage years with one of your kids, uh, just constant, never-ending drama and danger and financial ruin, all compressed, 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 compressed. Um, then you come out of that tunnel. Your kids are uh, graduated from high school. You don't have to do it. Like, no more time is spent on the kids. All that, like time compression that occurred i think experientially now has expanded so it's like i uh, maybe that scene in 2001 a space odyssey where space is just like like that's, <laughs> that's what my life is now it's just never-ending open possibility time has dilated <laughs> uh, because i i think i think my responsibilities were like so severe and mm. all-encompassing for 20 years mm-hmm. now that they're not it's just like i, I don't know maybe that that's my only answer um and so yeah it's just 100 percent on and going all the time probably to an unhealthy degree like i there are so many things that i l- remember loving doing and i would love to do again uh-huh. i love to sit back and play an open world game for all weekend just yeah. do nothing but play yeah. and and that, like i would love that I literally can't do that anymore. Mm. Like my brain is just always like, oh, you really should be doing this. Oh, if you're going to hit this goal, if you're going to get this book out in time, if you're going to have the YouTube video ready for the first, (laughs) which sounds awful, right? It sounds like, like tormenting, but because I, I love doing all the things that lead me to those goals. Uh It's Uh really not. Yeah. It's just a matter of like reprioritized, uh, life, I guess. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I really sympathize with that. Um, the inability to enjoy uh, games that require kind of blank checks in terms of your time is yeah. something that I'm feeling more and more acutely as time goes on, the more I do this podcast thing. Uh, it sounds like almost, um, so I'm sure there's been, you know, you know the events you described, it's, it's, it's only too easy to imagine how that could change a person. Um, and change their perspective on time. But I imagine also along the way, you probably just developed a bunch of skills that you had to develop in order to be able to manage. And you still have those skills, even if some of the pressure has, has abated. And maybe that's like a, like a fucked up silver lining in a way. <laughs> Quite possible. Yeah, I, I, you know, my understanding of psychology is that the very worst person to analyze themselves is themselves. So uh, <laughs> I try not to comment too much on, on what I have learned okay. or understand about the world. Um, I, and, I do know that when I talk to people about, uh, when I have deep, when I'm given the privilege of having deep conversations with people as I am with yeah. having with, with you right now, um, I'm almost always, fascinated by their reaction to what I'm telling them. And I'm always interested in their story as well. I think Uh that there's a a mode of communication that is accessible to people um, when their brain state is in a a certain modality. I'm talking complete gibberish right now. But you speak in my language. I love this. Go on. I think that's what developed in me is that is that desire to, to to really just share deeply about my experiences and mm. and hear from other people because there are so 
so often I hear from people, wow, I can't believe you shared something so intimate and mm-hmm. and like awful and or or whatever. You know, it's not always awful. I've had lots of good stuff in my life too. Yeah. Um and then, oh, I have also had this kind of experience. I have also, you know, and and I've never really been able to talk to other people about it. And so I don't know if there's just a dearth of this kind of deep conversation in our society in general, or, uh, or you know, my life brought me to a point where I like, you know, kind of, uh, I don't know, I overindulge and that gives other people permission to then feel free to also Sure. Um, and maybe it's not overindulging. Maybe it's the right amount of indulgence. Right. Right amount of thinking, right <laughs> amount of indulgence. Yeah. yeah and I, I could see that too. Even the way you, you present yourself with your, 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 you've always had this, this crazy spiky hair. And I, I've seen you try out different beard styles. That's kind of like a, like a pushing the boundaries yep. and the people, make the people around you, I imagine, feel more comfortable doing the same when, when they, they see it every day. Yeah. I, I always figure like, well, Again, this is a, this is probably an artifact of having to compress and repress my natural inclinations for eleven years while I was married to my first wife, who okay. pretty much hated everything about me. Um, <laughs> to being free to express myself, and so I kind of go uh, overboard on the other end, and now I just look like I'm in cosplay all the time and just covered in affectations, just because I can be. And it's like, yeah, you know, why not? This is the Josh I've always seen. I, I, I don't even, I can't even imagine what you'd look like without, without this look going on. It's, it's interesting. People who see my pictures from, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh-huh. you would not recognize me. Uh, yeah, well, change, uh, change your surroundings, change yourself. Maybe that applies to things like hairstyles and stuff, too. I gave up on hair. I decided yeah. it was for the birds. Hey, so. that's uh, a big time saver. Actually, you know, my hair ended up this way specifically because I just gave myself a time limit. I was like, well, I had several criteria for my hair. Uh-huh. I was like, what can I do myself so I don't have to pay a barber, uh, I, you know, or a stylist or whatever. So, yep. Yep. you know, I can bleach my own Same. hair just fine. I can razor cut it in this style just fine. Uh-huh. And, um, and in the morning, it takes... Uh, about three ish minutes to get okay. it to this point. I'm like, that's about my limit. So <laughs> I love that. That's worth. Yeah. So, sometimes the uh, form follows function, right? Oh, a bonus because also, you know, I mentioned how much I love irony. I love uh-huh. that it looks like a video game anime character, and I hate anime. I don't hate it. I, I don't like Oh, anime. you too. But everyone who sees me assumes that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that I think. That's a logical assumption. No, here's another way that I, I empathize with you is I've never understood the draw of anime and it's it's so it's strong in the youth I culture. My formative, yeah, my childhood years in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> if not you, like, then who? Yeah. No, look I, I, I respect all forms of entertainment. Um, yeah, I, there's I, nothing I, wrong with it. It's just it, everything resonates with different people in different ways. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, okay. So speaking of resonance, um, so we just talked about like how you make time and how kind of the way your path through life has, has affected the way that you, you see use of time. Um, I'm so earlier in our conversation, Josh, you told the story about how coming to arena net and then you met your, your, uh, future wife at that point, uh, shortly after, uh, kind of ushered in a period of 
sounds like needed stability in your life after all the the craziness yeah. of of your, of your your first row uh, wife and drugs and everything else. Um, I'm so when did the um, when did the discipline of so it, it sounds like the discipline of actually sitting down and working on this stuff did it come about at, at a certain point when your home life changed because of the circumstances or was it um, at a certain point when you were, were working at ArenaNet because I know that you how long have you been streaming for? Hmm. Streaming probably three ish years. Okay. Although I have a really bad sense of time, it's probably been more than that. Uh, YouTube, uh, almost ten years. Uh huh. And how do you how do you like existing on those platforms? What's your where are you at with them these days? Um, it's one of those things where I don't see them as an end in themselves. If I did, I would have given up a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the the idea is that. I'm trying to put myself and my work out in as many manifestations as I can, uh-huh. as long as they are not impending on the my primary work, right? Uh-huh. So, but part of my primary work, if I'm going to achieve my goal of having this franchise, of you know, launching a franchise, I need a lot more eyeballs on my work than I currently have, mm-hmm. which means, right, in this day and age, being on all the platforms. Um, and because I happen to have the skills to do particular development on the franchise that is intrinsically interesting for a lot of people to watch, you know, making right. the art, um, it's just kind of a no-brainer. And, and I'm a, just a social person. I love talking yeah. to people yeah. and interacting anyway. So it's like, why would I not do this? Um, yeah, so it just kind of synergizes that way. But, you know, hopefully... Things start to feed into each other and something snowballs into something else. You know, I, I've certainly got some book sales because the people who follow my art tutorials on YouTube, have, you know, see, oh, he made a book. Oh, this piece of art is for this book. Oh, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, and I hope yeah. to get more into that as time goes on. Uh, an, an interesting um, kind of uh, symmetry between like your approach to that and to the, 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 the Tales from Talafar itself about making sure things are consistent and connected. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, well, synergy is is obviously a fraught word at this point because it's huh. such a like a, <laughs> a terrible business lingo at this it's point. But, corporate um, value of synergy. That's right. Um, but it is the right word for, for this, right? Okay. It's like okay. all the various things I'm putting out into the world, I hope... They are creating a tapestry that pulls some people in from that, some people in from that, and they start like percolating into the the ecosystem that is Tales from Talifar. That is my yeah. franchise, yeah. you know. That's ecosystem cool. is also now an overused word, <laughs> especially in tech. But <laughs> yeah, no, I and I I gotta ask these questions because like what what you're doing like. Um, like those th- that kind of problem of trying to get people try to see if the thing that you want to bring into the world is something people actually want. Um, mm-hmm. Trying to make sure that people who can like your work do find your work. Um, those are yeah. all, all problems that I'm trying to solve too. Um, mm-hmm. I've only been doing my thing for about a year, um, but I, I, I'm always surprised about the things that end up working versus the things that don't. And uh, mm-hmm. 
making sure it all connects. What kind of metrics do you use to judge that? I'm I'm curious. I've never really dived into the the metrics that are available on YouTube or Twitch or whatever. Or sure. I glance at them from time to time, and my eyes crossed immediately, and I had no idea what I was looking at. It's like uh, it's hard to know what exactly to care what to look at. So like. On my YouTube, one of the stats I tend to really care about is average watch time. So, mm -hmm. uh, like most, for some reason, most of my podcasts are around the three hour mark. That just seems to be when my, my mind naturally wants to stop for some reason. So three hours tends to be what they are. And if I can get like 30 minutes of average watch time, I can start, that'd be pretty good. Cause a lot of oh, people yeah. who, are, who are clicking on the content are only watching it for a few minutes. And if, if four people do that, that means the fifth person is probably watching almost all of it way i think yeah. about it uh, well my understanding is that and, and i i don't know if maybe they've corrected this in their algorithm but i feel like people who click on a thing and then immediately click away either because they accidentally hit it or because they see oh this isn't something my i'm thing. interested at all like within a second like that's gonna radically change your average right yeah 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 and like it, it's it's brought up questions about like well how clickbaity do i want to be how much how grabby do i want to be with the presentation of the work and I think um, yeah. what, what I've settled on for me is just like, I actually have a very like visceral negative response to stuff that's very grabby feeling. Like if I see a creator doing a giveaway, a lot of times I will avoid the creator because of that, because of the giveaway, because I don't like the energy exchange that is, imp is yeah. implicit with giveaways. Um, it's like, it's just, it feels bad to me. And so yeah. I would rather have, you know, a handful of people really enjoy my work than have a lot of people be aware of it and not care. And uh, mm. but the, in terms of the metrics, so I look at watch time. Um, in my experience, people need to see my stuff a few times and like it before they hit like a, the subscribe button on YouTube. So subscribers is something yeah. that I watch um, sometimes with frustration. <laughs> uh, but it's hard. And, and I think probably the most... The metric that I actually end up tend to tend caring the most about is one that's hardest to measure, which is people telling me what they think. Mm -hmm. um, so if yeah. I can get someone to listen to an, to what to what to my content to the point where they gets them thinking, and if they think about it to the point where they then want to turn around and and communicate back what they think via comment or whatever it is, that to me is a real measure of being successful in doing what yeah. I'm here to do, which is to help people connect um how people understand the uh, the human stories behind uh the media and the things that we care about and engage with and rage at every single day um mm -hmm. so that's something i really look towards um and uh most of the time i don't get enough comments to make me feel satisfied like i feel like i'm not quite there mm -hmm. there have been a few times where uh, a content that i've done will get a big bum of comments and i don't know what to do with all of it but uh, uh, what do you think? Yeah, that's that's interesting. What you're saying about the you know comment versus statistics. It makes me think of like in politics, right? Mm -hmm. A politician can make their point by citing a statistic, right? Mm -hmm. And that's going to have like one percent the resonance of them pulling on a single mother who's been struggling with their child in daycare and blah yeah. blah. You, you know yeah. what I mean? It's like yeah. that human element interaction is is so visceral to our just navigating the world and our choice structure. So like as a creator, the choice to continue doing a thing or not 
it's it's predicated on these on these emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at statistics all day, and and they will impact your emotions, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but again, you know, months of terrible statistics versus one person saying this changed my life, or oh yeah. my god, I love what you're doing. It's like yeah, it's no contest. Yeah. Um, and which leads creators like us to do irrational things <laughs> and continue like doing irrational things in perpetuity. Um, and I think that's actually, that's good and that's healthy and that's, mm. that's good for the world. Right. Like, um, I mean, even, even from like a pragmatic business sense uh, or even an evolutionary sense, you uh-huh. always need outliers who are doing irrational things and experimentations mm-hmm. and, you know, just because they are oriented that way and they are going to do this thing mm-hmm. no matter what. And every once in a while, one breaks through and it becomes a new genre or it becomes the next big platform. The world. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I think about all like yeah. the artists throughout history who have only been recognized for their, their, their brilliance posthumously and in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. It's just, just did what you're describing where they just, they worked on something that, to an, an outsider and a contemporary would seem like an irrational waste of time. But then unbeknownst to everyone, everyone that person knew it would become something very important and lasting. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that might be one of the things that kind of keeps me motivated on the track that I'm on is once I once I tied all this creative energy to that goal of making the world more loving, it takes me out of the equation. Like I personally don't have to be successful or rich or well known. Like I could die penniless in a gutter, mm-hmm. but if Tales for Talifar like is a spark and it turns into something, you know, after long after I'm dead, hey, yeah. it's still mission accomplished, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, a way to like it's almost like the world made its mark on you. And now you're turning around trying to make your mark on the world. It's like a continuing some kind of a cycle there. Um, I don't know. Sometimes I think that the reason I'm interested in that, that question so much is just because I don't have kids yet, but <laughs> you know, the, the urge to make your mark, to create your legacy, that kind of idea. I mean, I had kids and I that didn't fulfill that urge at all. Okay. I, okay. Like, so <laughs> Yeah, um, I it's Fair I enough. guess it's one of those things where like kids are going to become their own thing and yeah. they're going to take whatever they want or don't want from you. And like to count on that as your legacy seems kind of, I don't know, weird to me. I guess it makes sense in the context of people who don't like create artifacts that go out into the world in uh-huh. the way that, you know, creators do. Um, so maybe that's part of it. I don't I don't know. I don't know. I mean, in a way, though, like if uh, when, when Tales from Telefar has massive success and lives beyond you or something like that, then people are other people are going to be making making things with it. Right. And yeah, they'll be they'll there'll be parts of its legacy that will be outside of your control when that happens. Um, yeah, that's my hope. Um, my, my hope is that I set up a framework, like I said, with these unique characteristics that other franchises don't have and then Uh like how it evolves later yeah that's that's up to fate you know it's like i i want to put something unique into the world and the world will do what it does with it you know (laughs) yeah can't be can't be overly concerned with uh, the direction it's going to go after that right all right well speaking of uh 
the world making of it what it will. I wonder, Josh, if, if you would indulge me and let me ask you some Guild Wars related stuff. Can we do that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So like, like I'm a good chunk of my professional life on it. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. Um, it, like I mentioned, uh, Guild Wars is one of those franchises that for me has always been close to my heart. I think I played it first back in college on a break from playing World of Warcraft, and I discovered Guild Wars one, and uh, played it a bunch. I played through all through all the campaigns up through Nightfall. Um, I'm not gonna tell you the whole story, of course, but um, it's a game that I really like. And it's unique in a few different ways. So Guild Wars 1 came out. It did its own thing. It wasn't like World of Warcraft. It had a... It's kind of like this this, this social um, um, RPG, not quite an MMO. Guild Wars 2 comes out. It is more of an MMO. Um, I guess the questions I want to ask you are thinking about things I know about you. And then maybe you can sprinkle in some stuff I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. Which would be, I know that jumping puzzles are one of those things that kind of stands out about Guild Wars 2. And I know that you have had your hand in making some of its most uh, uh, notorious jumping puzzles. Um, I wonder if you could tell, talk to me about jumping puzzles and what they mean to you in Guild Wars 2. Yeah, so I think so. The, it's a convergence of two things. Um, you know, I, I grew up heavily influenced by Nintendo and action games in uh -huh. general, right? Uh, my first role-playing game was Final Fantasy 1. Um, and then I've been forever angry at Final Fantasy after all the sequels because they took away my ability to make my party out of my own characters. I don't uh. know. But um, so I, I've always I've always loved um, the kind of the, the depth of an RPG, the, the growth that a character goes through in an RPG. But I've also always loved the kinetic, frenetic, side of video gaming as well so yeah. um guild wars one it was exciting to me to get to work on a fantasy franchise it was the first time i got to do you know high fantasy which has always been a, a genre that i love uh -huh. um but the but the gameplay was you know not what i didn't have that that big bang whiz sort mm -hmm. of uh <laughs> whiz bang is probably a better way to put that um yeah it was paced and, it was paced yeah um and so you know, I worked on the Guild Wars one franchise for seven ish. I don't know, many years, right? Tell me what you did in Guild uh, Wars one. What, what, what kind of contributions can stand out to you about that game? So I was a level artist technically, uh -huh. um, but ArenaNet doesn't have or did not have level designers. Okay. So I'm trying to remember if I was technically hired as a, in the design department or the art department. But I think uh -huh. shortly after I started, it was all like everyone who was building in the map editor was in a level artist. Okay. And then the designers would have feedback and we would iterate with the designers who were setting up the content, you know, here's where the enemies are, here's where the loot is, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, <clears throat> but what that meant was that uh, there was a an expression of art and an expression of design happening simultaneously in that role. Right. And you had to really excel at at one or both. And I was always kind of walking the middle ground there, like because design was so important to me, uh -huh. um, I I didn't dig in as hard into the art side. Okay. I, I still think I made some pretty maps here and there. You know, I, I worked on some of the beautiful um, 
uh, what's that first region with the sunflowers and the autumnal trees? Oh, and... pre-searing Ascalon. Yeah. People love that. I Even still today, yeah. there are whole communities within Guild Wars 1 that just live in pre-searing Ascalon. Yeah, so, you know, I made some beautiful stuff, especially given the limitations of that engine, which were incredibly severe. Uh-huh. Uh but yeah, so so I was always like kind of kind of writing that middle line of design and art, and um, the when when we made the jump to the Guild Wars Two engine, uh, it was such a uh, this gets back to the theme of like being compressed and repressed for a period of time, and then like <laughs> springing to the other direction. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, like the first thing I did when we started you know development on the new engine and had a jump button in was I started making jumping puzzles. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. Um, so the in in all the maps that I was working on in pre-development, I was putting these things in. And yeah. eventually one of the designers was like, oh, I'm going to put a treasure chest at the end of this. And I was like, ah, you should do that. Not everyone in role-playing games is really going to be into jumping, you know? Like, mm. this is not a Mario game. This is Jumping is its own reward. Board. Exactly. Which is why I made these little gold coins. I made a prop that has my little JCF logo on it and like put that at the end of jumping puzzles for, uh-huh. for the first, you know, several that I made just as a little nod to the player to be like, hey, you uh, did it. I, I acknowledge you got to this cool place. Good job. Um, cool. But yeah, eventually it turned into a, an entire system and a, uh-huh. kind of a, a feature, which, um, I was a little horrified at it about it first, huh. and I've never really been comfortable with it again because, like, I just I don't want people feeling that they have to play something that I worked on, mm. even though they don't like it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what you, that's what you end up with. There's the rewards put, component of, rewards. of the design, right? Um, but yeah, so that that was really a result of me just in loving spatial exploration in yeah. games and, and finally getting to do it. So that's one of my favorite things about these kinds of games is the idea that you can find something unexpected. And mm-hmm. uh jumping puzzles always struck me as a very like once you figure out that it's a game system and once you've done enough of them, yeah, like you're right. It becomes a system. Like any other any other system in a game that you're meant to repeat over and over again which can tend to blur together over time and tends to be more about the rewards and less about the thing itself. Um, but before you get there, when you're still exploring, I love how those um, those moments where, because you have to think carefully and jump carefully, it kind of slows down your movement through the world and you yeah. kind of increase the resolution, uh, not not of the, the, the technical assets, but of the player's attention. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. like my... My opponent is the is is the environment. I better pay attention to this. And you might see something and notice a detail, like about the the architecture of the region, or about the the biome, or about the flora, or about the types of creatures that are there that you wouldn't notice when you're just plowing through doing event chains stuff like that. I always love that. Yeah, I love that you love that. That um that is very much ties into my impulse behind it. Uh, now obviously, when you as a level artist slash designer, uh-huh. I'm going to spend three to six months working on this patch of terrain that people are going to run from point A to point B through, you mm-hmm. know, at top mm-hmm. speed. Um, and it's great when to see them kind of shift modes and really take in 
the the scenery. I actually recently watched a video, uh, well, a vibe checks is huh. what this uh, person called it. A okay. vibe check in a video game is a point at which the game either demands or heavily suggests that you stop and do something different. An example of this, uh, if you played Ghosts of Tsushima, uh, there's these places where you can stop and write a haiku. So your oh. character just sits down and you just look at the environment, you pan your camera around and you find areas and little like text prompts will appear by a tree or a leaf or uh -huh. a rock and you kind of compose a haiku. And so that same idea is like, it's just taking, it's the same place you've been. Nothing uh -huh. is different. It's just how you uh, examine it and experience it that's so different. Uh -huh. But um, what, you're, what you're mentioning about examining the environment and kind of seeing it as its own challenge is interesting to me. I hadn't thought of this until you said it out loud, but okay. my favorite physical activity is bouldering, huh. which is, uh, and bouldering, for those who don't know, it's literally jumping on boulders or climbing up on boulders. I don't like mountain climbing. I'm actually afraid of heights, okay. uh, and I don't want to deal with the gear and all that kind of stuff. Bouldering is all about just, like, examining the environment and seeing, can I jump from this rock to that rock? Can I, like, uh -huh. yeah, it, it, and it's... It's exact. It's a real life jumping puzzle. And, did, uh, did, yeah. So these are like the good. walls that you see, like right where, where, where people are there, the handholds, and people are doing the crazy positions to climb up them. Is, is that what that is? No, that is rock climbing. Okay. Simulated rock climbing in a gym. Bouldering is on literally on boulders. So generally, they're going to be anywhere from like five out of the world to twenty feet tall. Not in a gym. And Right, out in the world. Okay. Uh, there's okay. very few places here in western Washington, sadly, that have a lot of boulders. The best place was at the bottom of Snoqualmie Falls, which is famous for being the waterfalls and yeah. Twin Peaks. Uh, you used to be able to climb down to the bottom there. There's all these giant, you know, car oh, and, and house-type boulders. But they recently, like, really gated and closed it off. Yeah, so you, can't you can't get down there anymore. Yeah, yeah it's sad. <laughs> Probably okay. better for my ankles and fingers, though. So, uh, yeah, I would so Josh, who wanted to make jumping puzzles, loves jumping on rocks IRL. Yeah. Yeah. Who would have thought? Thought? <laughs> thunk? Thought? That's a mixture of thought and thunk. <laughs> and thunk is, which is also a portmanteau of kinds. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, slowing down, mm -hmm. paying attention to the environment, jumping on rocks. Yep. And uh, so the. I guess, so I want to be careful about jumping to this topic because I know it's a big discussion of its own. So before I get to that, um, I think the first time I found myself getting frustrated by a jumping puzzle, because I like jumping puzzles too. Like I, I actually, the thing about MMOs I kind of like is that there is a variety of things you can do. Like my mind doesn't like doing the same thing all the time. I can't grind. Like I'm just mm -hmm. systematically unable to do so. Um, but uh, the one I'm thinking about was the one that came out with the, uh, I think it was the Rising Flames release in Season 3 in Ember Bay, the Chalice of Tears, that mm -hmm. jumping puzzle. That, that's one that you, work, you worked on, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was the first time where I thought to myself, you know, I broke down jumping puzzles into three primary challenges. Huh. Um, uh, you can imagine them, you know, on a scale of one to 10. So one is like the actual execution of a jump. So uh -huh. you see that you have to jump from point A to point B. How how difficult is it to, right. to time that? Uh, the second one is, uh, I can't remember what I called it, but it's essentially uh, the ability to assess 
where you need to go. Okay. Right. So that okay. can be either more difficult or less difficult. You know, a very straightforward example is when you're jumping from pillar to pillar, uh -huh. right? Like on Griffin Rook Run at yep. first, it's just like, yeah, it's very clear. I'm going here. Mm -hmm. It's all about the execution. Um, what's the third element? Maybe time plays a part in it. I can't remember now. Anyway, let's just say there's only two then. <laughs> I decided to turn the slider up to 10 on both of them uh -huh. and say, How's how what is it like? What is the experience like? Um, and uh, it's important to know for people who don't know, I'm pretty average at video games. OK, I do not excel at like Twitch games. I, you know, gr granted, I have beat all the Souls games, okay. um, but a lot of that is just like sheer persistence and willpower. You know, I I've, I've beat Tribulation mode, um, but. Yeah. So when when I build something that is like this uh, abstract and and difficult, I am suffering along in the process. I see. Um, granted, I generally know better like where I'm supposed to go. Obviously, I'm the one who's building the convoluted, yeah. tortured path to get up there. But because it's so ambiguous, it's often hard for like I'll know the general direction I need uh -huh. to go, but there's still uh, often I'm like, oh, I'm a foot over from where yeah. I should have landed and yeah, I remember. slow be there. I remember yeah. doing that. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And yeah, not just ha pulling off the jump, but not even knowing where to go. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of spatial exploration. That is my primary um, pleasure in virtual environments and mm -hmm. games. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are people who are explorer archetypes uh, for systems, like they okay. get into the nitty gritty of like, okay, if I put 12 points into hammer and I have this, you know, other attribute, how do they mix and whatnot? Uh -huh. yeah. uh -huh. That stuff doesn't, uh, I don't care about that at all. Okay. I'm all about like, what, how can I get into that little corner? You know, can I actually jump from this point to that point? Okay. Uh, you know, so that's, that's always been my thing. And I think it's just interesting from an artistic standpoint to see where the limits of that are. Uh -huh. And so I yeah, I very purposely was just like, let's let's push it to the absolute limit and just see what it what kind of experience it is. <laughs> Again, I hate when people suffer to do something that that I made when they don't want to do it. Uh, -huh. uh but I but within the context of Guild Wars 2 and given the you know, how many jumping puzzles we had done up to that point. Mm -hmm. I'm like, there should be a couple that are way out there on the bell curve. Like yeah. 80% of the jumping puzzles are around the middle of the bell curve. Let's, yeah. let's put some way out there. Some variance. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that. that. That makes it feel more. Um, Yeah. I think like, I don't know, like as an outsider, I observed that, that trend in many games of designing for the middle of the bell curve. But the thing is like, I think that as people, like humans, have an understanding of things that feel real versus things that don't feel real, and things that feel mm -hmm. too shaved down tend to, I don't know, um, this, is, this is a weird idea that I'm working on with games where um, uh, we have an intrinsic understanding of the value of a game based on how well the game reflects other games, and, the, and of course the biggest game of all, the world around us. And um, also the the transferability of the skills that that are rewarded within the game, and so like I see the uh, the desire to put something out there on the on the edges that that's just really hard. It makes the whole 
game world to me feel more um more real and feel like the things that i'm doing there are of higher value in general even if i'm not doing that that jumping puzzle the fact that i'm doing another one knowing that there's one out there that's just like balls to the wall i like that yeah i think that's good shit that's that's actually an interesting um, topic when it comes to world building as well, because oh. there are so many anomalies in the world. Everything from like naming a city to the colors of rocks in a river. Yeah, uh, There are outliers that are just so weird that if you simply go with your gut on what you think things should be, um, you're going to end up exactly like you say with a very like rounded off you know not real feeling um, yeah. thing you need to look for the anomalies and make sure that you're seeding anomalies in your in your world whether it's a virtual video game world or a, a novel world or a uh -huh. tv world or uh -huh. whatever yeah that's cool yeah so like i can imagine if you're like say you're taking on the task of naming all the cities and towns and tales from talifar or whatever and they they all follow a certain theme like yeah they're all consistent with each other but if you look at it the way that real cities are named the consistency is not is not a real thing it doesn't feel yeah. real yeah exactly yeah the i literally named i want to say 1600 uh towns cities farms ranches oh rivers mountains uh for this map that uh, for book two of this trilogy okay you know, it travels across a large swath of a continent and because i'm just incredibly pedantic as i was making the map and I was doing a bunch of research on like how far apart do things have to be when there's not modern, you know, uh, mm -hmm. machinery and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it turns out the answer is pretty much five miles is about like the furthest oh. a thing any other thing will be, like as far as a village or a farm or a ranch or whatever. Okay. Um, you know, with, with rare exceptions, again, there's always things out on the bell curve. You know, there there could be like a trapper's tent. Or you know, a logging right. community that's often in the boonies, but um, there's always like very grounded reasons for why those things exist. Okay. So anyway, yeah, I ended up feeling, you know, I I had dedicated. Okay, he travels from this end of the continent to this continent to this end, and because the map is zoomed in, I put a map at the beginning of every chapter because one of my pet peeves about fantasy novels, especially mm -hmm. ones where there's lots of travel or, you know, lots of different locations that things are taking place, is there's one map and it's on, like, page four. And you're always, like, flipping back and trying to, like, say that. So I'm like, that's uh -huh. an easy thing to solve. I'm just going to put a map at the beginning of every chapter that shows they went from this point to this point now. That's cool. Right? I like that. But anyway, because it's so zoomed in for most of those travels, uh -huh. it seemed weird to have all these, like, blank areas between things when I know there's villages and farms. And town, so, town, yeah, question marks. <laughs> yeah. So I named everything, even the parts on the giant map that he doesn't travel through. Again, pedantic. But also investment in the future because uh -huh. there's other characters going through this world at different times and different places, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I did a lot of research on how things are named, what they're named, and why, and looking at anomalies and looking at very silly names, you uh -huh. know, um, how how things are often like um, a foreign word version of the same thing. You know, there's uh -huh. there's the the town in England that if you translate it through all the different languages, it's like hill, 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 and river, <laughs> river, 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 you know? <laughs> yeah, like Canyon so, Ridge or something like that. Yeah. Okay. 
yeah, that's good. That, that's cool. Um, so uh, variants. Talking about variants, we were talking about the Chalice of Tears, uh, yeah. the jumping puzzle, and uh, so yeah, um, it's a was designed. It sounds like intentionally to be the hardest jumping puzzle challenge at the time in the game. And uh, I, I hear you talking a little bit about how um, it seems like it maybe is a little bit of a shame sometimes that people don't enjoy the content because they're not there. Like, that's not what they've showed up for in terms of the, the overall world itself, but th that's where the rewards incentivize them to go in some way. And I, I, I bet you, working on an MMO, that's something that is something that comes up a lot, is... Maybe it, having it the, the rewards yeah. be misaligned with what the what the content's good for. Yeah, there's this rule. I I can't remember that there's a word for it or or a short quippy phrase, but it, it boils down to the idea that if there is a slow, boring, safe way to do a thing and a fast, quick, skillful way to do a thing, ninety nine percent of people are going to do this slow, boring, uh -huh. awful thing, right? Uh -huh. And th that's just a reality we have to continually fight. Um, and it constrains a lot of design decisions, a lot of things that could be more, in, in my opinion, a lot more interesting, a lot more flavorful. Uh -huh. But it has to be dialed in such a way that we're trying. And, and even, even so, you're going to, this is uh, the fundamental problem of perverse incentives. And this is a problem mm. across all culture in every system that humans have ever created is mm -hmm. that there's always going to be ways to an ex to exploit a system in a way it wasn't intended to it just kind of naturally evolved that way mm -hmm. there doesn't have to be a conspiracy or bad motives behind the scenes to create it it right. just kind of emerges right and it, that's one of the difficult things about working on in games in general is we're mm -hmm. often accused of those things like some, you know, some bad, annoying thing is in the game. It must be because the developers were lazy or stupid or selfish or, right. or you know, greedy or whatever. You know. Yeah. Um, and it's not that developers can't be any of those things. It's <laughs> just that, that most of the time is not our <laughs> it's not our motive. We're we're gamers and we want to make the most fun game. We want to play the game and have fun, too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that that's just an interesting thing that always develops, and and so within the context of you know getting back to Chalice of Tears, like a big part, I think of being a developer in the world, uh, a, a hmm, how would I put this, a potential power that we have mm -hmm. is to communicate clearly, and so one of the things that I hoped to do, I had to fight to get the name chalice of tears mm. when i first was turning in my level and said this area and you know talking to the designer who was setting up the content for it uh -huh. this area is called chalice of tears they're like <laughs> funny no but really we're gonna call it blah 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 caldera blah, blah, blah. I'm like no it is important to me this is communicating something i want communicated uh -huh. right it's like it's a like it is the visual motif that I purposely designed because I decided that this would be, you know, this outlier in this situation. Uh -huh. um, and I want players to understand going into it. Now, granted, it is a bit of a bit of a or completely a double entendre in that a lot of people will see it almost as trolling from mm -hmm. the developer, you know, mm -hmm. like, haha, I'm drinking your tears, you know, but yeah. 
No, the the point is that it is purposefully frustrating because I think, like you were saying, it provides that rough edge, that <laughs> pointy bit in the game that provides more context for the rest of the game. And like you're saying, in an MMO, there's so many different facets to the game that are all run together in interesting ways and inform each other and and stuff like that. And um, going with the theme of the the release that we were doing uh-huh. and like all of these things kind of led to that. It wasn't it wasn't like an armchair thing or where I was like, I think ra- randomly this is going to be the place for the hardest you know ridiculous puzzle, uh-huh. but. It, it felt appropriate aesthetically and thematically for the release that we were doing to mm-hmm. have that there. Right. I mean, it's a volcano. So when, when you're, when you're deciding, so when did you realize that, that this was going to be the outlier? Is that something you decided up, up front collaboratively with other, with a designer on the team, or is this like an idea you had that you then had to persuade people? How did that kind of persuasion process and collaboration look? Yeah, um, the the idea of having an outlier uh-huh. had been nascent in my mind for a long time. I mean, we'd been making content for Guild Wars 2 for many years at that point. Yeah. Um, and I had pushed different, you know, in different directions for different jumping puzzles uh, for quite a while. And, you know, I just thought at some point I want to experiment and see what it's like to have... <laughs> Yeah, one that it, that maxes out both of those. Uh, again, there were three, but I can't remember what the third one is. I'm sure it'll occur to um, you as soon as we hang up the call. Yeah, naturally. Um, <laughs> yeah, so so I, I basically I had it in my back pocket, and I was waiting for the right opportunity. This uh-huh. this content came out, and it was all about this this undiscovered island of, and it was supposed to feel dangerous and unexplored. Uh-huh. And so I'm always looking for like from a player experience. In an MMO, first of all, you have this entire layer of expectations for rewards uh-huh. and like, what am I getting and how is this feeding my meta progression and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So that's like almost always top of mind for most players. Mm-hmm. And there's not much that or anything <laughs> that I can do about that as an environment artist and designer. Right. But what yeah. I can do is for those who are digging deeper under that is like, how can I thematically back up the, the narrative that we're trying to get across, the aesthetic that we're trying, you know, and, and the total experience of it. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just kind of naturally fit. I don't remember if I had to like fight with anyone to keep it as hard as it was. I do remember getting feedback about how hard it was. Uh-huh. Um, but also, you know, I, I'm very senior on the team at this point. I've led several Living World releases. Right. People just kind of trust my instinct and roll with it. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, whether it was the right decision to trust my instinct and not not edit me more, um, you know. That's I think it was great, man. Right. No, I, 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 I was miserable and I loved it. <laughs> Perfect. Um, that, that was what I was going for. This so this begs another question in my mind. Um, so one of the one of the phenomena. Uh, so I, I don't know if you're aware, but like, uh, so Guild Wars. I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that Guild Wars Two has this, its daily quest system, where it gives you an incentive yeah. for logging in and doing a handful of things every day. Um, and uh, a while back, I'm not sure how long ago this was. They added in uh, to the to the rotation of potential things that can be drawn out of the pile uh, daily jumping puzzles. And yeah. so uh, a lot of times, every single day, you'll have 
um, one puzzle that the community will go to and do. And what that often shakes out as being is a mesmer or two who, mm -hmm. for reasons that make sense for them, hang, uh, hangs out and portals people right to the end from some easy accessible spots so people don't actually have to do the puzzle. I wonder what you think about that kind of emerging behavior. Is that Was that something that was anticipated or did it emerge? And what do you think? So when portals were first put in, uh -huh. it became... I believe we already, yes, I'm going to say with near certainty, I had at least several jumping puzzles in the game, you know, before we launched. Mm -hmm. And when portals were put in, it was very quickly discovered. This is an easy <laughs> hack slash cheat to get people around this. Uh -huh. I remember, I don't remember specifics, but I do remember conversations about how can we fix this uh -huh. obvious exploit. Um, and I think it just came down to a rule of cool, like um, trumping, you know, the, the breakage of some jumping puzzles. And I believe, uh, again, uh, many years ago, I can't remember specifics, but I'm pretty sure I was on board with that because, mm -hmm. again, my philosophy was I don't want people who don't like jumping puzzles to suffer on my jumping puzzles. Mm -hmm. I'm happy if there are exploits for people who don't want to do it for its own sake. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that was fine and cool. Um, and also just rec the recognition that, um, there are so many different player motivations in an MMO. Like we have to serve, uh, as far as like a game genre, there are no other genres like this where we're mm -hmm. trying to serve explorers and killers and, uh, socializers and mm -hmm. influencers Cheapers. and I, I, the mm -hmm. whole list of player uh, motivations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so here is a way to simultaneously prevent people who don't like or care about spatial exploration mm -hmm. to get the thing, and also a way for um, socializers to get social capital by being the friendly mesmer who helps people. Yeah. Know? Yeah, I, I like I that aspect it of it. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I, I like that aspect of it, too. Um, I uh, For me, uh, I think a lot, sometimes I think back to like um, the, the early days of World of Warcraft where um, there are so many uh, asymmetries in in the overall experience that are put in that kind of force you to rely on other players. Like mm -hmm. um, mages have the ability to create portals for their party to go to the major cities, um, which is great if that's what you want to do. Um, warlocks have the ability to summon a party member if they have help from, from, from their party. To anywhere in the world um but you have to have a friend who's a warlock or a mage to get those services and um it, it gives a chance for people who have those roles to actually have a kind of an identity like it it tells you something about the world and what to value um and i, I think yeah, it's cool that, that mesmer lost, uh, i was just gonna say guild wars lost a big chunk of that when we no longer had a dedicated monk you know healer class right yeah so yeah, it, it had to be diffused into other other um, roles. Yeah, how do you make that identity? Um, yeah, that's another interesting topic. But uh, I, I always loved how how mesmers just just have like a cool job. Like if you're a mesmer, you you can have this job, and people will will yeah. thank you or tip you or ignore you or whatever. But it, it's a way to play the game. It's not you know just swinging your sword necessarily. Yeah. Kind of the lowest common denominator. Um, 
yeah, so you just mentioned, and I, I think I have to pick at this because you mentioned it, the decision to kind of move to uh, move away from. So, like, Guild Wars 2 was, I think, like, marketed as, like, the anti-MMO or something like that. And Yeah, we tried to purposely subvert several things that we thought were kind of stagnating the genre. Okay. Um, and one of those was the Trinity, you know. Yeah, what do you think about that that choice today about moving away from the Trinity? I mean, I don't know. I'm again, I'm I'm the spatial explorer archetype. Yeah, okay. So it's it's like that whole part of like synergies between players and like the strategic and and um tactical sure. layer of gameplay, it would it was just like never super compelling to me. Um I understand. But I you know, it's but also I am the type of player who enjoys just helping other players for fun. Right. And I definitely missed being a monk, um, which which I loved in Guild Wars yeah. One. Yeah. Um, I think it's really good when that kind of that kind of uh, role ident- role identity can exist. Um, so, like when when Heart of Thorns came out, the first expansion, uh, the the Druid Elite spec came in for Rangers, and all of a sudden, like there is a a spec whose identity was about healing others, which is kind of a, for Guild Wars 2 at the time, felt kind of new. And the role of having healers in the game has sort of become more popular in some of the organized content like raids. Um, I just did a raid the other day and there there was someone whose job it was to heal the group. Um, So that's really cool. Um, And like one of my, (laughs) so like I'm looking ahead to the next expansion, Uh, End of Dragons was announced. And Mm -hmm. um, as someone uh, who's a, when coming back and playing the game, like my firm hope for my my warrior, who's my main, is I just want a healing warrior spec for End of Dragons. That's mm-hmm. what I really want. Mm-hmm. I think that'd be so cool to have uh, uh, a uh, a job like warrior, who's traditionally like the front line badass, right? Kind of be have like a little bit of role sub uh, kind of uh, uh, subversion to be a healer. Yeah. yeah I, so one of the things that I'm always just like absolutely in awe of and terrified by uh-huh. simultaneously is is people who balance skills yeah I, like the spreadsheets that they keep uh-huh. the the um the analytics that they parse the the uh absolute continual deluge and attack from the community about everything to do with them personally that they have to suffer through. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's it seems like a staggering. very hard job. Yeah. Like, wow. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I'm good friends with them. I see them doing the process. I don't understand <laughs> it. You know, I, I read fans who are like, it's so obvious that they just need to do this one thing to this one class and it Uh fixes everything. Why are they so stupid that they can't realize this? And it's like, I see them like, well, a reading all of it. They read all of it Mm -hmm. and then going in and doing calculations and doing tests and like just constant, this crazy, like combination of accounting and, and alchemy. I don't know. (laughs) how uh-huh. it works but uh-huh. um yeah it's i and i've never seen a game that is perfectly balanced especially a live game mm-hmm. especially a live game where elements are continually added mm-hmm. uh so it's like yeah i so so as a result my policy is just not to co- 
I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. I don't know wh- how it's done wrong. I don't know how it's done right. <laughs> Just leave them to their spreadsheets, huh? Yeah. I, I sympathize. Like when people complain about a game that I work on, uh-huh. it I, I, I feel it and I immediately want to help them in any way that I can. And uh-huh. that's just an area where I'm completely at a loss. I'm like, there is yeah. nothing I can do to help with this. I'm so yeah. sorry. So one of the, um, uh, the currently one of the biggest streamers for Guild Wars 2 is a dude named Mighty Teapot. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, one of the things about his content I really appreciate is that um he uh when when there is a balance patch that he thinks does does something really good he really takes time to really glorify and praise the the guys who are doing that work um because as you say like uh so this is one of the this is one of the problems i'm kind of fascinated by like just at a meta level of um the discourse about the gaming experiences we have especially between uh gamers and developers um mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of where most of it is. And I don't know if anyone who likes it, to be honest. <laughs> and I have this this kind of crazy idea that if I if I have conversations like these with enough people and enough people listen, that maybe there will be uh, understandings that can open up um, and avenues that, that maybe can't exist. I know that there's this weird asymmetry between like, um, because people who are developers at at the end of the day are representing the work of a company and that's 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 just so complicated compared to me joe schmo who's just playing a game and the the opinions that i have aren't going to hurt anybody um except sorry they're not going to hurt anyone's bottom line let's put it that way Mm -hmm. so they'll hurt my feelings but that's okay that's what i well i I don't think it, it is okay actually and that's that's a big part of um of my my approach to this and like I, I, I see a lot of people who do um, interviews, uh, you know, um, with, with developers or people in gaming, and the focus is like, uh, you know, uh, let's talk about your work and is the work good? Is it bad? How could it? You know, what is it? Um, but for me, like, in, you probably, I hope, I hope you're getting this read from me, which is that one thing I'm interested in is you, you personally, Josh, like the human being, um, this human being who existed before and after Guild Wars. And, uh, like, oh, we have yet to see if I will exist after Guild Wars or Guild Wars will exist after me. We'll see. Do franchises like this ever get to die that have some success? I don't really know. We'll have to we'll see. see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Look for the Guild Wars reboot in 2045. You know what I want to see, though, is a Super Adventure Box game. Me too. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Super Adventure Box. Okay. Super Adventure Box is, in some ways, like the ultimate jumping puzzle. It is a singular creation that has to be seen to be believed if you've played Guild Wars 2 and never, never seen SAB. Um, tell, about, tell us about it in your own words, Josh. What is SAB? What is it? It is a developer's idea of taking what the little niche that they excel at in the, in the game they're working on and saying, what if... This game was only that niche. <laughs> <laughs> like a developer's paradise. Exactly. So, okay. you know, um, there's... So, I, I do take credit for inventing the jumping puzzle, right? Okay. As as far as a developer can be the person who made a part of a game. You know, Patent obviously pending. there's con- 
confluence of of uh, people and ideas shooting all every direction all the uh-huh. time, right? Uh-huh. Um, but I'm definitely the person who was who was like spearheading it and banging on that drum and kept making more and more until eventually designers listened and it became a part of the game. Um, and so I've, but like like I mentioned before, I've always had ambivalent ambivalent feelings about them because mm-hmm. I know there are many people who aren't into that. Mm-hmm. In addition to the fact that our engine is not designed for that kind of content mm-hmm. and you know, our physics are bad. People are playing on a keyboard and mouse. These are not how you do 3D platforming. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, but at the same time, we kept getting feedback from people saying, this is great. I love this. This is so fun. Please uh-huh. make more. Uh-huh. And, you know, the percentage of that versus uh, people who don't care about it versus people who hate it, hard to tell from forums, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's as a developer without like really specific analytics, which we did not have when we launched Guild Wars 2, we had like basic, uh, analytics, but mm-hmm. not like, I don't know, I won't get into it. Anyway, the, the, the point being is we don't know. I know that I love making them. I heard enough people like we were talking about earlier with our platforms, yeah. right? Yeah. Got enough actual people saying, I want more and I love this. Uh, that in- encouraged me to do it. So when we started doing the first content for a living world, you know, the first thing I did was, was like, ooh, let's make a map that's just a jumping puzzle. And that's uh-huh. how the Mad King clock tower happened. Yeah. And and so that was like the, the epiphany. It was like, oh my God, if we can make a, a standalone jumping puzzle on its own level, uh-huh. man, what could we do if we just like really leaned into this? Uh-huh. And, you know, we had a tradition like all MMOs of doing something crazy for April Fools. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, I, I just pitched it. I was like, what if we had a dungeon that was all jumping puzzle? And uh, and please let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, ArenaNet was uh, freewheeling enough at the time that they were like, sure, Josh, here's a little team. Go develop it for a Damn, couple months. Why not? That's a period of great experimentation, it sounds like. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, you know, it, it was it was a very experimental time. Uh, MMOs at the time were not um, well content cadence and and the type of content and stuff was not established. Like it's, it's still not established. Like not really. No one has really figured out what is the way to sustain a game in perpetuity. You know, you could right. say WoW has probably done the it's best assist. job. Uh, but even even they, it's just like release a new uh, pack after two years, bam, giant spike, and then way down again. And, you know, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. no one knows how to do it. Um, so and and we were aware that that was the trend. We were like, how can we not do that? How can we do more of a drip feed that are getting people in on a you know not the massive spike, but a good healthy number on a continual basis? Sure. And so. We, we knew the obvious low-hanging fruit is you want to do the holidays. Um, uh-huh. But then, like, how do we do story? And, and I, I'm sure you know our our pitch at the beginning was, rather than expansion packs, we'll, we'll do the equivalent of expansion packs just spread out over, you know, the living story. Right. And um, so, yeah, that... Yeah, we were experimenting with a ton of things. How often do we put these out? We started out with, like, trying to do a, a patch a week. 
Uh, you know, and then we were yeah. like, okay, how about every two weeks? And initially we had something <laughs> like six teams simultaneously trying to overlap and, and coordinate that, you know, and I, I was in charge of one of those teams for a hot minute. Uh, we, I did the, the uh, marionette fight and the jungle worm uh, uh, triple. Ah. triple what was that one? Anyway. Um, the marionette fight's coming back, by the way. They're doing an event and oh, they're, it? It, they're pulling it back in. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that that was, uh, yeah, it, it, the whole point being, yeah, tons of experimentation. We mm -hmm. wanted to try anything and everything. So Super Adventure Box was on the table. You know, I found a way to contextualize it to make it make sense in mm -hmm. Guild Wars, in my opinion. I'm sure there are people out there who disagree. <laughs> but again, the, this gets back to this thing, you know, when, when we first made it, we're like, okay, this is like a, a silly one-off thing that we'll uh -huh. do for this one April 1st. Uh -huh. But then enough people really liked it that there was enough kind of momentum to be like, okay, let's do another one. Yeah. Um, and it won't work as April Fools anymore. It'll be kind of expected. So let's you know do it for the next one. So yeah, we we did the world two, and um, yeah, it was just a weird thing in the industry. I can't imagine another MMO company being saying, yeah, do that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I think from what I've, everything I've heard about it and uh, read about it and playing it myself, like it seems like it's a real like um, again like uh, talking about variants and outliers. It's kind of an outlier in terms of 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 enshrined content in MMO games, fantasy MMOs. Um, yeah. I think it I think it makes Guild Wars that much more interesting. And again, just like having a really hard jumping puzzle makes all other jumping puzzles more interesting because it exists i think having content in the game like that that's so out there and just like what you can like there's like a simulation world and it's like based on all these weird like old like 2d platformer tropes and games that people played when they were kids and uh like if, if that can be in guild wars 2 guild wars 2 can be anything and that's kind of exciting yeah i think there's so actually what you're saying Makes me think of an another game. I have several friends okay. who work on this. I'm not talking shade about it. Okay. But a game that takes what you're saying to the extreme uh -huh. is Ark Survival Evolved. Okay. Okay. Like from, it, it seems like their design criteria is, did you have an idea? Yes, it's in the game. <laughs> and like literally anything and everything like flying dolphins and space and and gnomes and pooping and you know it's just like robot dinosaurs now you know yeah uh, okay going to the moon and now vin diesel's here <laughs> yeah, <I was> like, <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> it, it's madness but um yeah so so there's there's a wide berth of possibilities when it comes to creating uh, you know, a, a fictional world and like where you set those, those uh, posts, you know, uh -huh. those boundaries. It's, it's an interesting, just kind of aesthetic choice. And it's usually, it's rarely made by one person at one time. And mm -hmm. then it sticks that way. You mm -hmm. know, it's usually a, a general consensus and it evolves over time. Um, you know, one of the, one of the strictures that I always felt confined by um on the Guild Wars franchise was there was a pretty consistent um, uh, restriction against popular culture references. Mm. Because I think there was a recognition that the more you insert those into a game, the like MMOs already have to fight silliness at every turn because mm. it's, 
everything in an MMO is intrinsically silly. You've got yes. guys running around with pet rocks and and dragons, and they're playing. You know, they're fighting a boss over and over and over again, and uh-huh. walking uh-huh. through each other. You know, there's just like there's so much to fight against to get a sense of verisimilitude in mm-hmm. an MMO type of world that then throwing in, you know, Shrek references or Seinfeld references or whatever yeah. on top of that just makes the entire thing a joke world, right? Mm. Uh, so I totally understand why that was combated. You know, we still snuck in plenty of things, but they had to be more <laughs> oblique references, which... Yeah, <laughs> which yeah I, I don't know. I, I guess you, you're right, I guess, but I don't know. Like, I, I think of like... World of Warcraft is a game that has a ton, a ton of pop culture references. Like, I think people tend to love that stuff. Oh, they absolutely love it. It's it's about the presentation of it. Like, can you can you can you create the callback and still have it be like a believable part of whatever world you're in? Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's different ways to do it, right? There's there's the uh, was it was it South Park? There was some show that was talking about. Um, humor that is strictly observation, you know, remember Care Bears, and then uh-huh. that's the joke, right? You know, okay. uh, there's just pointing at the thing, the literal instantiation of the thing, yeah. and say, look at this thing that you recognize. Yeah. And then there is the, like, the sly wink and the nod, oh, this is like that other thing. Um, you know, you could say the dances are a lot like this, right? Where it's like, okay, that's the dance from Thriller, yeah, but I- it's a necromancer, it makes sense. When characters yeah. are dancing, it's it's not like it's not role playing as I am a person in Ascalon who is doing an Ascalonian dance. Uh-huh. It is I am human that I, and I've played with you before and we're just having yeah. a good time. It's kind of like yeah, that that so. that twenty eighty percent thing almost like that that's yeah, part of the eighty percent you recognize. Yeah, I also exactly. think that there's like a, a power in like aligning yourself with things people know about, right? Like, uh, oh yeah, it's, I, well. Go ahead. It's it's powerful and it's cheap. Yeah. I mean that that's the thing about nostalgia in general. Like yeah. in media, nostalgia is such low hanging fruit. It's so easy to evoke. It's and it's like as an artist myself, I, I well okay as a consumer of media myself, I oh. am totally subject to the whims of my nostalgia and recognize when I'm being pulled into it. Super yes. Adventure Box is 100% nostalgia. That uh-huh. is the draw of it, uh-huh. right? Well, maybe 90%. 10% might be if you enjoy jumping puzzles and spatial exploration, you'll enjoy yeah. it, right? Even if yeah. you don't recognize the references. But um, as because it is so cheap and easy to evoke, I think that's why, why comedians that re, uh, rely on nostalgia are considered by other comedians to be kind of gauche. You know, they're just, they're yeah. not good at their job. Yeah. They, they can get a laugh, but not because they're clever, because they referred to something you recognize. Um, and so <laughs> there's, there is that element to it where um, if you're trying to elevate your craft and, and be a good artist in your chosen medium, mm-hmm. you're going to be careful how much you're relying on that 80%, mm-hmm. I think is what mm-hmm. it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, uh, cheap cheap references can create a cheap outcome i guess yeah and that's the last thing you want um okay uh, it depends on your goal you know if your goal is to make someone chuckle uh for 10 seconds before you throw the next thing that makes them chuckle for the next 10 seconds it's uh, that's fine <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what would you say the goal of sab was 
Okay, well, honestly, I wanted to work on a platform adventure game that that fed my nostalgia. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. I knew that there was enough of an audience out there who felt similar, <laughs> had similar upbringings yeah. to me and had similar desires to play that kind of content. So I didn't feel guilty about it. Um, but yeah, honestly, I, that was my primary thing. Like, I just uh-huh. really wanted to make that game. Um, and I felt like within the confines of Guild Wars 2, Getting back to the the idea of design constraints, kind of okay. fueling creativity, like mm-hmm. the challenge of of justifying how Nintendo games could work in a Guild Wars game uh-huh. was was interesting to me. And I you know I had all these ideas that would be going forward into the future worlds about like it was developing into the console wars and like broader like ideas oh, of how how industrial uh, powers compete and and uh-huh. how like marketing works and like uh, you know L- little commentaries kind of, uh, yeah yeah commentaries on my industry on my art form yeah yeah and and so i yeah i was really excited to really be d- diving into that i hope like, they pick up that thread as as they yeah. continue yeah worlds three and four uh people want it yeah uh so world speaking of, like thinking of world one i think I, I read uh something somewhere maybe it was uh something from you actually about how um something about how the way that content gets greenlit at arena net at least at the at that time and how there was a moment where it looked like it was possible that uh sab wasn't going to be allowed to see the light of day Uh, oh yeah am i I remembering that right is that a true story yes yes it came within a hair's breadth of getting canceled at the like a week before it was oh god i can't even imagine dude yeah, it was simply a, a communication thing um, okay. at a big company. Again, multiple teams working on live content at the same time. Mm-hmm. We have an art director, uh, Daniel, and he's really from Romania, guy. and he didn't grow up with old eight-bit retro video games. Uh-huh. He, you know, we showed him what we were working on early on. He was like, and and explained this is for an April Fool's thing. Mm-hmm. He was like, I don't get it, but okay, it's an April Fool's Day now. Granted, the context he's working from is we've had April Fools where people turn into stick figures, where they fly around like airplanes, where it's right. like a plays out Tiny Terminator. Things. Right. It's April Fool's Day. That's all it is, right? Uh-huh. Um, I think the idea later developed or developed as as we were working on the content into making it like a full, you know, uh, several weeks. And then hoping that we would continue it in, in future installments. And I mm-hmm. don't think either he didn't hear about it or, or he forgot that that was the case. Um, but he was basically informed how big a deal it was actually was going to be in the uh-huh. game. Uh, like, yeah, a week before it was going to launch. <laughs> and he was like, I do I don't Boy. like this for our game. I, you know, as oh, art man. director, this is not an art style that we want in Guild Wars. <sighs> and, uh, and you know, Mo had a policy like if a director of any given discipline is unhappy with the content, it's not going to ship. If the okay. narrative director isn't happy, if the art director, if the design director, you know, that's that's and that's a good policy, right? Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. a reason these people are are there is to like shepherd the vision of the game. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. It was, but it, that was one of those rare cases where 
uh, that the policy was basically overturned because there was so much momentum and so much like love in the company uh-huh. for it. Like t-shirts, people were at the company were buying t-shirts for themselves because they loved it so much. And uh-huh. uh, and design was totally behind it. And yeah, I think like Colin and Mike Z were were both like had to have a long conversation with Mo and Daniel and like, look, this this it's done. It <laughs> really needs to just go out. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah. God, that makes me think about stuff that didn't make it into the game, um, or any game like that, like Guild Wars Two. Damn. But yeah. I, Things it, get cut and canceled for all sorts of reasons. Um, and, the, and again, that's one where had it been cut, uh, I would have been very upset at the time. Yeah. But in retrospect, I would understand. So. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the tough things about working on something that's bigger than yourself sometimes, right? Is yeah. you can't avoid leaving part of yourself within the thing, but you aren't the only person who gets to decide about what that ends up being collaborative anything is difficult (laughs) that's that's what it comes down to like you understand those uh salty artists and writers who just like go away into a cabin in the woods to do their thing for years and just you know no one's gonna bother me complete control you know so yeah but um yeah absolutely um well hey josh i need to take another like two minute break um are you, are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, folks, we'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Deke talking about Josh Foreman. We were just chatting about Super Adventure Box and how it almost didn't make it into Guild Wars 2. Mm-hmm. And how narrow some of these things are. Josh, um, I love Super Adventure Box, but I wonder if I can use that as an excuse to pivot to another topic, which is about another thing that didn't that did or didn't happen. And... Uh, and uh, it resulted in a big change in your life was the, the layoffs that happened at ErbityNet. I think at er- in early mm-hmm. 2019, which you were a victim of. Um, I saw the video you did talking about that situation and the outpouring of love you got from the community. Because um, yeah. when it happened, you just, what do you do when something like that happens? You just sit down and do your thing and you sat down and made art on the stream. People showed up for you. And I think that's, that was a really beautiful thing to have happen. I wonder if you can, yeah. what, what was that like? What are your takeaways? I've been through layoffs too. And so I feel a lot of empathy for that. Um, yeah. What was that like? Well, I guess getting back to like the privilege angle, like who has the privilege when they go through something devastating in their life to just like get online and have a bunch of people there to support them. Right. Like, that's, yeah. Okay. Okay. It's you know. undeserved and, and greatly appreciated. Um, there, I, I think because I had been building a community slowly over time, mm-hmm. um, that you could say it was a payoff from that in a sense. Mm. Um, I've always, you know, always been out there putting myself out there and, and trying to be engaged with as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I resonated with a lot of people. Um, again, it, I, I think because a lot of the pain of of a layoff like that and the uncertainty is it's not connected to myself, but it's connected to those I need to provide for, you know, specifically my wife who has a degenerative disease and needs particular um, health care. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, 
that's that's what was shook me to my core right it's mm-hmm. like i was so stable at arena net and arena net had like literally the best insurance coverage um in this area like mm-hmm. them and microsoft have the same okay. and they're both like the best um and so that was like oh my god this is probably life devastating um the the options at the time uh, like we mentioned, ArenaNet was a was a not uh, crunching type of studio, an anti-crunch yeah. studio. The vast majority are not. The vast majority don't have the same level of healthcare. So the prospects of a staying in this area, while, where all her like medical infrastructure is, and right. b still having access to that medical infrastructure with mm-hmm. an insurance plan um, that's good enough to do that, and c being able to still ever see my family because some of the places that I was looking at were just in massive crunch at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seemed very unlikely that, that there would be a good outcome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I think probably a lot of the, of the people resonating with me was, you know, I was, I was explaining this, you know, it's really not about right. me. It's about those I need to take care of. I, I think that probably had a lot to do with, yeah. with the resonating, you know, and another, you know, middle-aged white male video, you know, tech employee getting laid off. That's not a story that, you know. <laughs> yeah, but the story yeah. of not being able to, know, to take care not, of someone you yeah. love. That's something people understand, yeah. can relate to. So, so but yeah, um, what that turned out doing was giving me a ton of, like, new eyeballs on me all of a sudden because the, hmm. the news broke and it was obviously a big deal for ArenaNet and people who follow ArenaNet and people were directed towards towards me and my output as well, you know, it ended up bringing a lot of new uh, interest and and people into my orbit, which has been great. Oh, huh. that's cool. And um, I I got to ask then, uh, I, I know that you're now working with some, with another studio where you, that is involved with making games about making games, something like that. Mike, <laughs> do, do I got that right? One way to put it. Uh, I would describe it as a action adventure party game MMO. How's that sound? Sounds like a lot, but I'm yeah. I'm it, I'm holding it all in my head for the moment. I'm gonna wait for you to parse that. <laughs> so, okay, take Guild Wars. Uh-huh. Instead of fantasy characters, you are collectible vinyl figures. So that's the whole scene. You know, most people are familiar yeah. with Funko Pops. Uh, yes. You know the uh, right. Uh, but but those are derived from a much more creative, interesting, vibrant art community um, mm-hmm. that makes vinyl collectible figures, usually handmade or limited edition. And so that was kind of that's kind of the aesthetic inspiration is that community. And so it's very artistic, very colorful, very vibrant. And the rather than going out and doing quests, you know, in, in a big open world, you're jumping in with your friends and doing party games. You're, you know, there's like a, a shooter, like dart gun kind of game or, or racing. Um, a lot of similarities to um, um, uh, what, what was that? That game that was a huge hit for a hot minute in the summer with little bean guys that bump into fall each guys? other. Fall guys? Yes, fall guys. Okay. You know, where it's like you, you're racing through an obstacle course kind uh, of thing. Uh. Um that game suffered from a lack of content, right? There was like 
eight levels or something and mm-hmm. and eventually people just got tired of them um so what our game has which is very exciting and is the part that that i'm in charge of is build mode so people can build their own parties block parties we're calling them uh-huh. and so it's yeah so it's 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 very vibrant fun uh, the engine is built from the ground up for physics <laughs> which, uh-uh. is, which yeah. is a delight and a relief so all my jumping puzzles are actually like feel great to play um <laughs> no jank and yeah it, essentially what i'm what i am is like the guy who gets to design the legos to make incredible lego sets you know lego not trademarked by us but you know what i mean like mm-hmm. building blocks mm-hmm. so one of one of the most fun things i did at arena net was get to like choose and and modify the props that would become guild hall decorations so you can oh. make your own super adventure box in a guild hall, yeah. right? And so this is like the evolved version of that where you can go in and you get, have this massive list of blocks and you can make whatever kind of like fun mini game uh-huh. to do. So, uh-huh. Yeah, we're in we're in uh, open beta, I guess technically is what we're in right now. What's the um, name of the game? You know. Uh, oh, the name of the game is Blanco's Block Party. Blanco's check it Block out. Party. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's um, you'll be seeing more about it at, at E3 probably. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I did an interview for that, and um, yeah, it's it's just it's it's so right up my alley that it's almost painful. It's mm-hmm. it's just I, I... really fun. <laughs> I get to do what I love, which is both like design, do level design. But mm-hmm. also design the tools to make level design better, and then three work with the community to keep uh, to to like elevate the level design acumen that the community uh-huh. has. So really teaching best practices uh, for for level design and and aesthetics and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then um, yeah, yeah. So it's it's just it's really fun. It's really great. It's it is very much like Super Adventure Box, and I keep pushing. You know, as we develop the game, we're going to have more and more features, different uh-huh. kinds of mini games that you can create, uh-huh. and there will definitely be like an adventure mode that you'll be able to go in and you know do basically build your own super adventure box. is is my goal. So that is that's hype. The uh, the level designer designing the level designer. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool, Josh. I'm really I'm really happy for you, man. Um, I know that one of the things that Arena Net uh, I've heard is that they're they're not an industry pay leader. So I'm I'm hoping things. That, that, yes. I, I find in my own career sometimes that having been laid off, I then find an opportunity that pays me better. And I hope I hope you found the same. Uh, definitely, yeah. I was shocked when I <laughs> when my head emerged from the ashes and I saw what what industry standard was for my like uh-huh. you know seniority and and experience and stuff <laughs> like that. So, um. Yeah, that was quite a blessing in disguise. Uh, there, there was a period no for about uh, nine or ten months before I landed this current job um, where I got a, a... I knew it had to be a temporary job because they couldn't provide health insurance, but I was working on an amazing game uh-huh. uh, for Moon Studios. So I got to work a little bit on Ori and the Will of the Wisps. Oh, uh, but the vast majority of my time was working on uh, an upcoming game that that hasn't been announced. Okay. I mean, they've announced that they're making it, but there's little details about it. But okay. it was it's a combination of two of my favorite games. So, uh, yeah, it was amazing to work on it, but it was remote and most of the you know, most of the companies in Europe 
and they did sure. health insurance. And yeah, yeah, so it was basically worked as an interim until I found this job and managed to get insurance that gets my wife the care that she needs. Oh, thank God. Uh, I'm so happy to hear bump, that. A pay bump to boot. So yeah, yeah, that was, that's nice. I'm much closer to industry standard. <laughs> there you go. Like, yeah, my, my friends who, who bounce from studio to studio every couple of years, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I make so much more money, but it's like, it's fine. Yeah. Not about yeah. the money, uh, but certainly the the ability to pro, you know provide stability and long term stability for yeah my yeah. family is is what the money buys really so yeah and that's worth a lot it's worth a lot yeah. and uh, I, I I see you streaming and I see you building your world so it seems like you also found a good work life balance post internet yeah. Um, one of the things that, you know, I don't say very much because I feel terrible saying it is like 2020 was an amazing year for me. Uh, working from home is mm-hmm. just, it is my jam. Uh. I can be, it, it's, it, you know, you mentioned the ADHD. I don't know if I have that. I don't know what I have, but I definitely am the type of person who has peaks and valleys when it comes to where my attention can be. Yeah, where, you know where my focus can be, and so being able to just like dictate when and where I'm going to work um, means I could be so much more productive. And just doing the calculations, like I'm not commuting now 40 hours a month. Oh yeah. So if you think about an That's entire good, work man. week not in the car, instead being spent on developing my my IP, it's just like a massive boon so yeah everything is is like going right on the on the career front uh we'll see how long that lasts i two (laughs) things two things you just said i really resonate with number one 2020 actually being a great year for me i i I was lucky enough to work from home before 2020 rolled around um okay so uh but 2020 happened to be the year that i decided to sit down and start doing this um Mm, rather than just playing games and hoping they would make me happy, which they hadn't been doing for a while. Uh, so um, there's that. And also uh, just the work from home life. Um, I made a similar change uh, when, I, when I started this job in 2017, where I gained back, like similar to you, like 40 hours a month of not commuting. And even if commuting is not a drag, which it's possible to have a commute that's not unenjoyable, it's still time out of your life. Yeah. And that can add up so fast. And I, I just love um, the ability, if, if you work from home and are providing value in that way, and you, uh, and you have a, a passionate side interest, it's so easy to find time for all the things you need to find time for. Um, yeah. I think that's very cool. Yeah, I, I'm really careful to watch for indices from work to make sure that they are not just satisfied with you know the input that i'm having but actually like thrilled thrilled with what i'm doing and so far they're thrilled with what i'm doing which is which is fantastic i was really struggling near the end at arena net because um getting back to that that thing where i was talking about where i was kind of walking this line between art and design and Mm -hmm. not really excelling on the art front you know i will Mm -hmm. still stand behind a lot of art i did i think it's good but there were definitely level artists who were more focused on the art and did the art better than me. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so there were a couple of years 
where I was on a one of the startup projects, uh, you know, mm. a, a totally different IP okay. and doing level design, like strictly design, well, kind of art, but mostly the design at that point. Mm. And it was amazing and I, it was great. And But then when that got canceled, it was like, well, back on Guild Wars 2 and the state of the art of Guild Wars 2 environment art had passed me by. Like I, you know, uh-huh. I got in the engine and made some stuff and was like, this is not shippable. This is shippable quality for like 2014 or 15, uh-huh. but not for 2019. Mm-hmm. And uh so that was that was That's hard, brutal. and I had to figure yeah. out, okay, what is my role here now? Uh-huh. And um, the designers were very kind to me, and a, several designers took a lot of their time to try to help me learn the scripting system and, like, you know, the the, the fundamentals of, of, like, well, pretty much scripting, because if I was going to mm-hmm. be a designer... Uh, that's that's how you design at ArenaNet. There was, again, there was no level designer role. Mm-hmm. Um there was designer, designer, content designer. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I I struggled so bad. It's just my brain does not do scripting, programming type of stuff. So, sure. yeah, that was really difficult for me. But uh, so this job here, it's all it plays all to my strengths and none to my weaknesses. So yeah. it's just, yeah, it's amazing. That's great, dude. I imagine that there were after the the project cancellations there were a lot of people in a similar situation at ArenaNet who were trying to find new trying to figure out what to do i've been in situations in the past um myself um i, I work in tech i do uh at this point i do consulting work um because people figure out i'm better at talking but uh uh i've been in situations in in my career in tech where after a layoff it's like everyone's looking around like okay well or after a project cancellation, people are still around, but no one knows what they're supposed to be doing, or yeah. everything's changed to the point where what they were doing makes no sense anymore. That's exactly. tough, especially when yeah. your your paycheck and uh, your 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 livelihood and the livelihood of people you love depends upon you adding value. That's very stressful. Yeah, I, had I known that like layoffs were on the horizon too, I would have just. I, I would have known, you know, yeah. the X was coming. You know, in retrospect, I can totally understand why I was on the chopping block because by arena net standards, I was high in salary. You know, I had been there forever. Right. And what was my contribution? Was it commensurate with, you know, contextually with what uh, other people um, were doing? And yeah, yeah. the answer is no, because there was not the position. They did not have the position that played to my particular strengths. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, anymore. It sounds like it worked out for the best at the end. Blanco's block yeah. party. Yeah, really excited about it. It's uh, yeah, and uh, it, it, it's so great to to have a day job that actually like kind of invigorates me and it energizes me. And uh, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's funny. Like people people have this idea of like, oh, I'm creatively fulfilled by this thing. But to me, uh-huh. if if something gets me fired up creatively, I just keep going and going and going. Yeah. Right? It's not. Yeah. Yeah. I relate to that too. Um, I know, man. I, I think it's. I think one of the, the coolest things about getting to know you, Josh, has been figuring out that you aren't just this person who has this 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 incredibly refined day job where you're you're paid to to apply the skill to you know helping make games good, but where you carry over that same creative passion to, into things after hours. Like I think there are a lot of people 
in situations like more similar to mine where you have your day job that is one thing and that came about because of circumstances you know like for me i, I needed work i knew uh, i had a my father-in-law at the time was working was working at a tech company and could get me a job doing tech support so i started there and then one thing led to another i'm tech support i'm data analyst i'm solution engineer i'm etl engineer and now all of a sudden i'm doing consulting but it's not like i decided to do that it's not like that was yeah. in me to do it's that's what was there and met the need that i had at the time and since i've started off down that path all of a sudden it's like oh like I'm really passionate about podcasting and about having these conversations and about interviewing people and about talking through problems. Um, how do these things connect? And a lot of times uh, I find that at the end of my, my, my day job, I'm so exhausted by doing whatever it is that I don't, that it doesn't just not give me the creative impulse you're describing, but it actually uh, prevents it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's like there's the virtuous cycle and the vicious cycle, right? Where, yeah, if you if you become like spent or demotivated, it's yeah. harder to get to get that traction back. Yeah, man. So um, I just I am so pleased for you, and uh, I'm trying to well, I'm trying to figure this out for myself. Um, I don't need to make a comparison, I suppose. It's just uh, I suppose, like I mentioned before, a big part of the reason I sit down and have these conversations is to try to learn from other people. And uh, your example is a really inspiring one to me. Glad to hear that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just want to say, like, when you, when you were talking about, you know, how you, you have this passion for, like, having these conversations, mm -hmm. um, I, I think I can see why. I think you are legitimately good at what you're doing right now. Like, oh. you are good at evoking things and people like just the things that you have said a number of times have got my brain like onto a different, really interesting track. Huh. And I think that's what good interviewers do, good good conversationalists in general. So yeah, I keep doing what you're doing. I, well, I think, thank you. Uh, you're great at it. Like, whether the world will reward that, uh, you know, we live in this world. We, we live by the algorithm, we die by the algorithm. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you have a natural talent for this. So well, I just thank want you. To encourage you. That, that made my day. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. Um, well, Josh, we've we've caught up to the present day, I think, in terms of your story. Is there anything else that you want to talk about tonight? Sure. Let's uh, let's go fast forward to twenty years. Let's find out if uh, Tales from Talifar has taken off. I will definitely sit down and have that conversation with you in twenty years. Let's plan on it. Um, Are you yeah, wanting to you look know, now uh, into the future? Is that what you're thinking? Like, did, uh, that'd be do you want to like speculate? Sorry, maybe I mis I misread the question. Good uh, conversationalist would... misunderstands the next question. <laughs> no, no, I was I was totally being flippant because you said we had, we had caught up to the to the present. I, I was kind of being meta, like in a Rick and Morty way. Well, let's just keep going. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. You know what? Um, I sh I should take this opportunity, um, to just yeah promote your stuff, man. What was the word? Let me pitch this book a little. Do bit. Do it. Obviously, we talked a lot about in general tales from Talifar. Let me tell you what's special about the stories that we're putting in here. Hit me. Um, so, so my mom slash co-author has been writing science fiction primarily uh, for, you know, all these years since before I was born. And her real specialty, she's, she's a bit on the spectrum, I believe. She, she's kind of diagnosed herself as, as Asperger's. Okay. Um, my my sister is severely autistic and requires okay. full-time care. 
you know, it kind of runs in the family. Um, But what my mom has the capacity to do, which I, it, it just blows me away, is she will pick a thing about uh, alien psychology. She's created this alien, this creature, uh, this race, uh, whatever, and she will find a few really interesting elements to tweak. Mm. Now, this is this is a trope in science fiction, right? Where or fantasy, you know, any genre fiction, really. Let's take the Klingons for example. Yes, they are humans, but. They're all err, and they're just, they're all warlike. Or, you know, the Ferengi, well, they're just hyper-capitalists. They're all mm-hmm. greedy and selfish, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like the hackneyed way to do it. I, I, I love Star Trek. I love, you know, uh, all those things. It's fine for what it's doing. Okay. Um, what my mom does is take this idea, but, like, treat it with such incredible, like, nuance and artistic expression. Mm. Um where something about it usually starts with biology something about their biology means that necessarily something about their psychology has to be different than human okay and that is that is what's explored quite often and brought into compare and contrast with with the humans that are on this world uh-huh. um the, the the particular um so how does a fantasy world be scientifically plausible? How are there multiple sentient races that all dwell on the same planet? Yes. Uh, you know, the answer that I came up with, and, and it's not the first time this has ever been done, but it's mm-hmm. essentially a zoo planet or, well, less a zoo planet and more a wildlife preserve. So there's mm-hmm. these these intergalactic Ooh. species called the, the sh- um, wardens. And when uh-huh. a species, a sentient species out there is on the verge of extinction, they're going to go grab some of them and stick them on another planet that's similar enough that they can survive. So a transplant, <laughs> like a home, you an know. intergalactic zoo. Um, yeah, but not just for the enjoyment of the wardens. It's specifically right. because the warden's top val- value is to preserve uh, the uh, most... Um, uh, a variety of life that can exist in the universe. They okay. recognize this is this is the most special thing, the most rare thing in the universe is life, specifically sentient life, right? Uh-huh. So, yeah. So basically, Talifar is this planet that is essentially Earth with the continents shif- shifted around. Okay. I did years and years and years of research to find how can I make Talifar as exotic as possible, but mm-hmm. still habitable by humans. Hmm. And it turns out the answer is, you can change almost nothing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> but man. I changed Spaceship a little bit Earth. that I could. Okay. Yeah. G- given, given the size of the universe, it's fine to have a practically exactly Earth uh, replica out there with, with the continents sh- uh, shifted around in interesting ways. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there are about a dozen or so uh, sentient species on this planet that have come from uh, several different places. Uh, with different histories and backstories, and they were transplanted to Talifar at different times. Mm-hmm. And so what makes Talifar very interesting is that it deals with uh, a lot of um, the ramifications of having different alien psychologies share a, a space together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. how does that happen? How is that navigated? Um, how is it negotiated? Yeah. Because... You know, for instance, we have a species that doesn't believe in the future or or, you know, <laughs> they they can f- 
sense it, but their religious slash cultural upbringing is that they should pretend the future doesn't exist. So they can't sign contracts. Uh, okay. they, they can't negotiate for future things. Oh. How does trade happen in that context, right? Right. Uh, we trust. We have, a, yeah. we have a species that requires other species to incubate their eggs. Oh. Um, how does that work? Yeah. There are sentient ones. There are feral ones. You know, that all sorts of nuances that have to be navigated. Okay. There are okay. giants. How does a giant work? Scientific, uh, a scientifically plausible giant. Well, uh-huh. they can't look like people for one. Mm. How do you distribute enough weight? Uh, how do you, um, and, and what does the metabolism dictate about, uh, their, their life cycle, okay. how they move, how they okay. think, um, in, in, in this case, they are, uh, they can metabolize minerals to create hydrogen. So they're essentially giant hydrogen blimps, but very well insulated. Okay. Uh, but they have to stay away from lightning. Um, <laughs> they mostly stay inside. Uh, they, they can hibernate parts of their bodies at will so that mostly it's just their head thinking, uh, you know, and the rest of their body just kind of drains and turns gray. And huh. then it can fill up with blood when they're ready to move again. Um, you, you know, so so there are all sorts of really fascinating ramifications as far as like what kind of a fantasy world happens when you throw these different biological necessities together in uh-huh. these interesting ways. Um, and all of that is the backdrop for um, fun, romping adventure, you know, okay. a, a classic okay. hero who goes off. He's got to go on a quest to save his people. You know, that, so there is that 80% familiar in there. I, I don't know if 80% is the right number, but it's, it's up there, right? Sure. And so yeah, it's, it's anyway. kind of like that, that scene in, in, in the cantina in Star Wars where you see all the different exotic like aliens. And it gets, yeah. gets your mind juices flowing. The, the cosmopolitan yeah. like... And then you read the extended universe tales from the cantina and you find out all their backstories. And yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. Okay. So I like, this uh, like I said, we, we have 12 novels written so far and are you know currently developing more and a graphic uh-huh. novel and all this uh-huh. kind of stuff. But a, a lot of what we're doing is very much along the lines of tales from the cantina where most of the books are a character that you, you see uh, briefly or, you know, it's a side character, but now yeah. they're off doing their thing. And so we're kind of spider webbing out from this original trilogy ah. to explore the rest of the world that way. Um, not that we're confining ourselves to that, but it just makes sense, like, from a world building perspective to kind of kind of st- stay local to this one continent, this one empire, this one, you know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. because so much involved in, like, creating the necessary depth mm-hmm. for, an, uh, for a place. Um, and then we'll kind of slowly branch out from there. And, and I think people who follow the franchise from early on are going to just have a blast kind of seeing that unfold and unroll as, uh-huh. as new areas are explored and new creatures are discovered and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So. That's cool. And what's the first book called? Uh, the Scarred King, book and, one. And where can people get it? They can get it on Amazon. There you go. So, you do a search for that you can find it um on my youtube channel if you type in um scarred king book trailer you can see a, a beautifully uh voiceover by aj who also did um a bunch of voices for various um guild wars 2 commercials as oh, well cool he, he did the voiceover for me so oh that's awesome 
Yeah, I, I saw you, you 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 make a tweet. You sounded like you were frustrated about the outcome of the trailer. Oh, I was very frustrated. Uh, not with his voiceover work, but yeah. Like I mentioned earlier, you as an artist, editing, there's another thing. Yeah. You know, special effects and editing. It's like, I should be able to handle this with a few tutorials. And it's like, well, to get to state of the art, you really need to spend years and years and years perfecting it. And so I'm always <laughs> frustrated with like, but I've spent, you know, the equivalent of three months learning this thing. Uh-huh. Why aren't I at the professional level yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it makes sense, man. Well, uh, I think that that's a, a brilliant pitch. And uh, it sounds like a very interesting world. The premise is really cool. I love the comparison to the cantina in Star Wars as a Star Wars fan. And that yes. really reads. And Amazon.com. Yeah. Sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I, I was just saying the cantina had a huge impact on me as a kid. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, me me too. Yeah. Like I that's one of those um it's one of those moments that that is yeah, like there's character stuff going on there, but it's like wow, look at how big this world is. Look at how much yeah. is going on in that we don't know about it. Like it's all these little like Yeah, and I what you said about having um the the stories be about people who are like side characters and like like people in the cantina in a previous story like that's 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 really the good stuff i mean we see a lot of franchises going doing that now like um star wars with the mandalorian where mm-hmm. uh they're creating all these spin-offs like like uh boba fett's getting a getting a thing um yeah anyway i just think that's so cool and uh what else, Josh? Is there anything else you want to promote? Wow, no, I feel like I've done plenty of promotion pro- <laughs> promotioning. <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, uh, I will do my bit. Uh, if y'all are here, though, you probably already know who I am. I'm Deeg. I am uh, Mr. Talk About It Conversational Content Podcasts every week, hopefully every Monday night on t- here on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash TV. I'm doing discussions about various topics that I think are interesting. Uh, last week, I did a discussion about why I'm not playing uh, the Burning Crusade Classic for World of Warcraft. Week before that, I did a topic about what makes a legendary weapon legendary in different games, that kind of stuff. And um, you're gonna check those out. That sounds interesting. Yeah. And uh, next week, if you're watching this contemporaneously. I will be interviewing uh, Guild Wars 2 content creator DeRoyer, who was enshrined in uh, the Fractal Lounge in Guild Wars 2. And uh, he's a real solid dude. Anyway, thank you, Josh. This has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you for the gift of letting me get to know you and talk to you all about the awesome stuff you have going on. Yeah, and thank you for letting me prattle on and on. My absolute (laughs) pleasure. Thank you, Josh, and thanks, y'all.